This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Because none of us were born with an owner's manual. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research that helps you understand what's going on in life. Today, no exception, Cole is sitting in for Jeff uh, Jeff Simpson. Jeff apparently, allegedly has a cold. Mm-hmm, but we're not quite sure that uh, we are going to believe that because who knows what Jeff's really going through. Is it is he just is he just recovering from his birthday bonanza? Right. He had that trip to the bounce house he was talking yeah. about. I maybe he you know, maybe he got a little infection in the bounce house. Bounce house pizza and some soda, maybe uh-huh. yeah. Get kind of sick. Mm-hmm. Sounds like got a uh, rumbly tummy. Chuck E. Cheese to yeah. me. <laughs> got a rumbly tummy, is that what you said? He's got a rumbly tummy. <laughs> He's got a rumble in the tummy. <laughs> Crazy. So anyway, we will uh we miss Jeff and if he happens to be listening, which I'm sure he's not. Yeah. I mean if he has if he was smart, he'd just be sleeping. Yeah. You have a day to well day off. I mean, you're sick. Hey, I I did a, a speech last night and mm. uh, had people come up that love the show. Alex really? listens to the show. He's been listening to it for four and a half years. Wow. Can't get enough. I haven't been listening that long. I know. What look what you missed out on? Right, man alive. What he would have missed out on is today's topic. We will be speaking with a professor of psychology about why uh, when a person loses their dog. It is like losing a member of the family. Right. We are so close to our dogs. Now, it's interesting. Well, I've got to ask if it's the same research with cats. But um, is it just the pet that matters or is it really just dogs that we're so connected to? But it's like losing a family member. Hmm. And yet we don't have any method to grieve. Like family members, you know, you get days off, you get all the stuff. But if it's your dog that dies, we're like, yeah, my dog died too. And society doesn't really isn't really built to support you for the mm. loss of your animal. That's right. And you know what it's, do you what do you do? You can't call in with a your your dog died. Yeah, you. you I mean, you could, but I don't think you can call like a, an ambulance or the huh? morgue. Do they come pick up your dog? Maybe they do. I don't know. I bet somebody would. I don't want to know. Dogs. Well, well, you see, like um, a dog is is hurt, or is there some sort of uh, I don't know. You, it goes out on you put you know something on Facebook, and there's just this outpouring yeah. of affection for this. But it's it's also. But then if you talk to it like a, and I have some in my family and and relatives that are used to like working a farm, they look at you like you're crazy. Right. It's a dog, mm-hmm. but it's not a dog. No, it's like my son. It's a child. That's why my wife doesn't want a dog because it's going to die and she doesn't want to have something else she loves die. Right. Right? Yeah, and, we, we, and she I, doesn't want him to chew up the furniture. Went through that as a kid. When yeah. I had a dog, was there for my from like junior high on and then it got old and yeah. my dad took it to the pound. See, it's mine too. My yeah. mom took mine to the pound when I was on my honeymoon. I think she, she hired a hitman. A hitman. I don't know. He just – Really? <laughs> he, I just got home from my honeymoon, and she told me she had to take him somewhere. It was yeah, tragic. It was hard. 
they they called my parents called and they let us all know. I think they took him to a veterinarian who, because yeah. the the girl the dog her name was Sandy by the oh, way she, she was uh, really having a hard time. There was some cancer going on. Oh, Hips yeah. weren't working right. It comes to the point where you're like, let's give her a. Uh, uh, instead of you know, suffering in right. the end, you make a decision and right. you take that you put the dog down, but it's still really sad. No, it's, it's tragic. That's a part of your your yep. family. All but your at childhood. the same time, where do you? Is there a limit? Do you, do you say this is an animal, not a human? My emotions need to be here, not well, there. And maybe and, more and more people are are use are like connecting to dogs like they're animal. Like they're, I mean, like they're human. They're not just animals. They're their it's their baby. Right. And maybe we need to take it more serious when somebody's mm. only friend dies maybe we need i don't know do we need laws do we need better understanding and stuff i mean how many times has somebody said oh our dog got hit by a car and you're like oh i'm sorry that's yeah but you don't think of it like oh my son got hit by a car right you'd be like what can we do how can we help Hmm. oh yeah sorry Bad news. Yeah. This, well, this goes to the point where you know you dress up your dog. Yeah. You, you do. All, you have, there's these real relationships yeah. going on. Oh, and don't you wish we could talk to these dogs? I mean, and actually know what they're saying. Right. Because then it'd be like, <laughs> why you put me in this hat? Because I'm just yeah. a dog. Relax. <laughs> like seriously. I mean, I love you and everything. But even the dogs have been bred to to be so attentive to to their owners that mm. you know that's why they're man's best friend. Apparently, apparently, a woman's best friend is a diamond. Seems so shallow. Well, that's what the commercials tell you. Yeah, the man's best friend diamonds. is their dog. Yeah, yeah. Don't believe the commercials. Oh, yeah. Women love their dogs just as much as men. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. Plus, we'll be doing some empty news uh, as we celebrate National Joe Day. If you know a Joe, go up to him, give him a big hug. And a Joe, by the way, could be any gender: Joette, Joey, Joseph, Josephine, Joanna, Joanne, Jody. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. And you just give them, today you give them love. We mm-hmm. give them special attention. Joe is a name that goes way back. And uh, we want to celebrate it. So that's today. Plus we'll get into some headlines. A man that can lift 22 pounds of water mm. using nothing but his eyelids. Wow. Why, you ask? No idea. <laughs> How do you discover such a talent? Yeah. <laughs> Mommy, Look. <laughs> Look what I can Look do. what I can do with my eyelids. <laughs> Listen, Tommy, quit lifting with your eyelids. I told you you're going to pull something. Not good. We'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer criticized President Donald Trump after the GOP-backed health care bill failed to garner enough support for a vote on the House floor Friday, saying that the president showed two unhelpful traits during negotiations. Basic lack of competence. You cannot run the presidency like you run a real estate deal. You can't tweet your way through it. You can't threaten and intimidate and say, I'll walk away. It's more complicated. The president campaigned as a populist against the Democratic and Republican establishments, but he's been captured by the hard right wealthy special interests. Schumer said the other failure of the GOP's health care bill was that it gave too much to the rich instead of Trump's working class base and predicted that any effort uh, for Trump's next agenda, agenda agenda item on tax reform, if it does the same, will also fail. 
Wow. Your, your base, the people who voted for you, you take them into consideration, yeah. you might be successful. A man sitting in the back of a public bus in the Las Vegas Strip opened fire for apparently no reason as passengers got off a, at a stop in the heart of the tourism corridor, police said Sunday. Gary Brentling, 57, of Sydney, Montana, was shot and killed Saturday before a gunman barricaded himself in the vehicle, shutting down the Strip for hours. The Clark County Coroner's Office said he died at the hospital. Rolando Carnadas, 55, had been accused of the shooting and has surrendered peacefully after a standoff inside the double-decker bus that lasted more than four hours. The police report yesterday was, again, no apparent reason. They're still investigating. Oh, boy. Uh, Application and acceptance season is underway at America's colleges and universities, but this year some institutions of higher learning may see a noticeable dip in attendance from one group purposely choosing to stay home, foreign students. Applications from international students from countries such as China, India, and in particular the Middle East are down this year at nearly 40% of schools that answered a recent survey by the American Association of of Collegiate Registrars and Administration Officers. Educators, recruiters, and school officials report that the perception of America has changed for international students, and it just doesn't seem to be as welcoming as a place anymore after the president's immigration orders. The number of foreign students topped one million for the first time in 2016. They generated some $32 billion in revenue, which supports more than 400,000 jobs, according to the Association of International Educators. There you have it. Now they're backing off because they don't feel like they're welcome here. Uh, Other news. Lois O'Brien and her husband, Charles, have had a sort of an Indiana Jones life. But instead of ancient artifacts, the O'Brien spent 60 years collecting insects across 70 countries and seven continents. Oh, wow. Those bugs, approximately 1.25 million of them now, fill more than 1,200 glass drawers in the O'Brien's home in Arizona. (laughs) So, yeah, bugs everywhere. Uh, But not for long. Charles and Lois are donating their collection, valued at $10 million, to the Arizona State University. Holy cow. Uh, bug people, I guess. That's the wrong way to say it. There's an yeah. actual like scientific term, but they're yeah. bug people. The O'Brien's bug represent one of the largest private collections in the world. More than double ASU's collection when received. ASU says Charles and Lois are two of the world's foremost entomologists, and the dean of the Division of Natural Sciences calls the donation a transformative gift. The collection, which includes more than one million types of weevil, oh, will help boy. ASU fill the weevil family tree. We'll oh, fill it wow. out. They'll be able to yeah, finish now that. Yeah, you can finish the family tree. One ASU entomologist says the O'Brien's collection contains maybe 1,000 insects that are new to science. Really? They have stuff that people have never seen before. Lois, 89, Charles, 83, met at the University of Arizona in the 50s when he, uh, he was an entomology teaching assistant. She was a student. Mm. We were brought together by insects, they said. Lois said her their shared passion helped keep them together, and they've had a great life. We've traveled and experienced all kinds of exa- exciting things, things being bugs. It was love at first bite. Like a, some might bite. I thought the in there would be more your relationship coach oh. sort of feel. You know. Yeah, but boy, aren't you? I bet her, their kids are grateful. Like, whew, Get these out of the house. That is a mess. Yeah. It looks like a very organized hoarder situation yeah. in their home because it's, it's just drawers of, you know, the bugs with the, the pins through yeah. them and they're displayed but everywhere. You've got and, 10, it's worth $10 million. Yeah. I mean, well, depending on who wants to buy the bugs, yeah. Oh, but there's some people that would be like, "I'll take them." <laughs> I love bugs. How neat, though! And all of a sudden, about a thousand uh, t- different types of bugs that have never even been right seen. Not to mention all the weevil. Yeah, what do you do with all? I mean, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been in a person's house that had a lot of weevils, mm. but I don't know they were collecting them. 
I think they were just had food storage. They had some food issues there. With, with wheat. <laughs> they were trying to, you know, collect a two-year supply of wheat. Mm. Instead, they got a two-year supply of weevils. Well, you know, protein. Now, do weevils, is it weevils or weevils that wobble but they don't fall down? I think they're weevils. Right. Not weevils. Do we need to get to the bottom of that one? Yeah. To send uh, McKenna on that one. Okay. She, she's after it. <laughs> hey, uh, I guess, you know, it could be weirder than an entomologist, you know, hoarding a bunch of bugs. Um, what about a man that can lift 22 pounds of water using nothing but his eyelids? Remember we talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She can, um, she can curl 70 pounds. Right. I mean, that's pretty bad to the bone. Or bench press, I guess. Yeah, right. she does a whole workout. Yeah, she's bad to the bone. Um, a man can lift 22 pounds of water using nothing but his eyelids. His name is Song Tao. He's 43 years old. He's been performing this very impressive, painful-looking stunt on stage for the last 26 years. The man from East China has given the act of the, uh, the literal name of eyelid bucket lifting. Okay. Which is different than bucket listing. Eyelid bucket listing is different. Right. That's where you just write the bucket list on your eyelids. This is where you have to actually lift a bucket. After he stretched out his eyelids, he could probably write the list. (laughs) So it could be both. Go ahead. Amazingly, he he can lift uh, two containers of water weighing 11 pounds each Hmm. using metal buttons on his eyes. The man can lift the 22 pounds of water with his eyelids. He said, I used to be a dancer. Song said, while performing, I met a teacher who passed on the bucket lifting skill. I slept with the buttons on my eyes for a half a year. Then I was able to perform on stage. Hmm. Song uses a homemade contraption, which is made of two buttons, some string, and two metal hooks. He squeezes the buttons under his eyelid on top of the eyeball and attaches the other end of the string to the bucket handles. Hmm. So I think he probably apparently puts like a snap it sounds like it's a snap, and somehow is it going through the eyelid? Apparently. Wow. Yeah. Because, I mean, how else are you hooking something to your eyelids so you can hold them? Yeah. And why doesn't it rip? And why do I just feel nauseous? Yeah, right now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and why? Why? Song. Mm. Why? It's, it's a skill. Is it? Someone taught him the skill. Of snapping a button right. through his eyelid. And then he'll get some cosmetic surgery to fix the, the whatever problem that's causing that's his eyelids. the funny thing is in the United States, everyone will be like, oh, you've got to get those eyelids yeah. fixed. Your eyelids sag so much. I mean, does he like have to flip it up like it's his bangs? And Yeah, maybe. Maybe he just, I don't know. That is a very odd skill. But maybe it's too. It's Maybe it's not so odd. Maybe he just found a strength. So does he do tricks or does he just sort of walk out with them yeah. hanging from his eyes? Like my wife can jiggle her eyeballs, okay. which I think is pretty neat. Right. Because like, you know, at a party you're like, hey, honey, do the eyeball jiggle yeah, thing. Yeah, do that eyeball thing. But what happens when you're like, hey, song. Yeah. Can you, <laughs> can you help me take this, you know, bag of concrete out? Sure. Let me get my, shed? let me put the snaps on my eyeballs so Snap I can. Snap on. Yeah. I don't know. Crazy. That seems like it would be problematic. Yeah. It seems like it might cause neck issues. Yeah, but I I think the snap thing's brilliant because you could use those for other things. Maybe like when your eyelids are getting in the way, you could maybe put a little like a string around your head and hold your eyelids back. Maybe you put another set of snaps. You can flip them up and snap them up to your forehead. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Kind of like like Snoopy wears that little pilot's cap that he can 
Yeah. You can take his ears and flap them up and snap them. There are the covers on, on the tent. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. like tent windows. You have yeah. to flip them up. What are you going to do with those? Yeah. You'd think you'd do Velcro or something just because right. of the technology. But no, go with the old snap. Yeah. It'll never right. let you down. If you're, if you're planning on lifting um, anything with your eyelids this weekend, we suggest you don't. Just maybe seek out song. Get some advice before you start trying to lift heavy weights with your eyelids. Ah, song. Come on. Song's his name. Song Tao, 43 years old. Strongest eyelids in the West and the East. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why losing a dog can be harder than losing a relative or a friend. Interesting insight from a, a researcher that's been studying it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. When someone we love deeply passes away, we have services and reflect on our memories of the deceased, while others, you know, offer sincere condolences. Your neighbors, your friends, family may gather around to support you through the through the difficult time. But in our, in our culture, the same courtesies are not often afforded when a pet passes away. Here to explain why losing a dog can be harder than losing a relative or a friend is psychologist Frank McAndrew. Frank is the Cornelia H. Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College and elected fellow of several professional organizations. Frank, thanks again for being on the show. Again, you the second time you've been on with us, and uh, we appreciate your time. Actually, the third time. Is it really? Yeah. Is it? Is it? Are, every time it seems like the topics get more and more like uh, interesting to me. Like this, this dog thing, it's real. People love their dogs. Do, is it true that it might be harder when a dog passes than even a family member? Yes, absolutely, it can be. Um, and now I've gotten a lot of angry I messages bet. from people who think I'm insulting um, the loss of a child and that I'm insensitive to their needs, but. Certainly, um, I've had lots of people confide to me over the years how hard it has been for them to get over their dog, uh. and then take that next step and say, you know, I lost a, a cousin, or a, you know, one of my friends died, and it wasn't that hard. And so, it's something that people experience. What What is it that makes the difference, and 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 why is it? I mean, I guess the dog uh, today's dog has become more than just you know something that goes hunting with us. It becomes our friend. It becomes a family member. Well, it's and it's an everyday part of your life. You build your schedule around the dog, right? I mean, you're, True. you walk it and feed it, and you build your vacations around what are we going to do with the dog. And when the dog is gone, you've lost a daily companion. You've lost one of the organizing principles of your life. Um, whereas for a lot of your relatives and friends who you see once in a great while, your life isn't built around them in quite the same way. So the sense of loss isn't quite as great, but you feel guilty about that because oh, yeah. it should be, right? Yeah. I mean, really, they are. I remember as a child, my dog was there every day after school for me. I was a latchkey kid. My mom had to work. My parents had divorced. and um, But I'd go home to my dog, and it was my best friend, my protector. It was there every day. So, I mean, I guess in a way we we probably if we talk about attachment disorders and, and attachment theory, we might even be more attached to our dog than a lot of other things. 
Well, and when you got home from school, your dog was always happy to see you, right? Absolutely. I, I don't know that you can say that about everybody else that you know, right? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Is it, it? Do you sense the dog has taken a different role in today's culture? I mean, I know you're an evolutionary psychologist, um, social psychologist, and I'm assuming that the dog has a different place in the home today than it did years ago, did it? Does it? Well, I think people have always been really attached to their dogs. I think um, what's probably happened, because people are more mobile now in societies like ours, you aren't as tied in to your relatives as we once were. And so uh, the dog has sort of stepped up to be that companion that goes with us everywhere. And, um, yeah. So true. It really is. Do you sense a difference in the research or in, in your studies about it? Is it different with a dog versus a cat? Or other animals. Well, I've got I've gotten a lot of hate mail. Yeah, this is where you're going to get beat up. Yeah, yeah, and I I've had cats, and you'd get attached to them, and you you miss them greatly when they're gone. I've heard from people who you know had a horse that died, and think yeah, I I've heard from just about every kind of animal ever there is. But the thing about dogs is that they are different from their ancestors in one very important way. They have evolved to be our friends. They uh, exist two push buttons in our brain that makes us be attached to them. Hmm. Uh, cats and horses and other domestic animals are not that different from their wild ancestors of long ago. And so um, our relationship with them is kind of more on their terms, whereas the dog is their program to please us, basically. Talk about that programming to please us, bred, you know, bred to please us. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, Dogs, of course, are descendants of wolves, and it's not just any old wolf that was captured and, you know, domesticated. Um, there there are, were some very interesting studies with uh, foxes. I'll, I'll digress a little bit here. Um, they were done in Russia, and basically what they did was just selectively breed foxes who were not afraid of humans. And uh, so they had this big fox farm where they were raising them for hmm. fur and so forth. And... Uh, Foxes that would snarl at people or run away from people were not bred, and they bred these foxes that would approach people and seem friendly. And over a relatively short number of generations, the, the appearance of the foxes changed. They got curlier tear, uh, tails and uh, floppier ears, and mm. they started to look more like puppies. And so um, breeding dogs that, or breeding wolves that were not afraid of humans to be more successful, they had to really endear themselves to humans. Yeah, yeah. And so we've created this animal that's a people pleaser. Isn't that interesting? And and really, um, I mean, I, I guess, too, the more popular brands or the more popular types of uh, animals, the more popular breeds are the ones that tend to get picked up more and probably rebred more. And those that are – I mean, we, we've heard of them now being used as comfort animals, as support animals. Um I mean, really, I guess more and more, it's it is a, it's a it's a love story, really. Yeah, it really is. And um, and again, I'm not trying to diminish the bonds that people have with their cats or their horses, um, but I think dogs are in fact different. Do you do you get a sense um, because there is it's so socially almost seemingly incorrect to to ever say that that you you could love your dog as much as a child as much as a family member as much as a human but really i guess your research is showing it's there it is and um 
you know, when people imply that there's something bad or wrong about that, they, they talk about it as if you can choose, you know, as if you're willfully saying, I am going to care more about my dog than I care about my relative or my neighbor or my friend. But you can't help that. I mean, your emotions are what they are. You feel uh, a certain sense of attachment or you don't. You feel a certain level of grief or you don't. It's not like you're willfully choosing the dog over something else. It's just something that happens to you. Right. Would you um, suggest, like, uh, we have a family member that really doesn't want a dog for that very reason. They they don't want a dog because they don't want to con- have to connect again at that level and have potential loss and um is it is it healthy to to avoid it as well or is that I mean would it be better that we we just love? Well, I think uh the answer might be different for different people. Um I have a neighbor who lost his dog shortly before I lost mine. Um, and the dogs were friends, and we would kind of walk them together every once in a while. And he was so devastated that he said he will never go through this again. Mm. He just, it was so traumatic for him. And he did compare it to the loss of his son. He had a son who died, and he, you know, didn't say this was worse than that, but uh, it was right up there. And he was not going to put himself through it again. I felt devastated when my dog died, but this is not the first time that's happened to me. And I know... Um, over time, you want another one. Yeah. And, you know, the the good stuff has to outweigh the negative stuff. And if you're a person for whom that's not true, then you're not going to get another one, and you shouldn't. It's uh, it's an interesting thing in our city, our community. We we were, you know, everyone was wanting a, a, the city to purchase land for a pool or the land for tennis courts. or And instead, they purchased a, this land, and they turned it into a dog park. Mm-hmm. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making a dog park. And anybody that doesn't have a dog drives by thinking, ah, oh, geez, what a waste. But that park is packed. That place, it, and it's social. Is So one thing about dogs, it seems like, is it they may make us more social than maybe a cat that uh, likes, you know, that stays at home and that might keep us in the home. Is there, is there, because there's something you brought up about you and the, your friends that you'd go walk dogs together. Is there... Is there a is there a healthy connection about having a dog and the impact it has on us socially? Well, sure. It it uh, gets us out there, and it does invite people to interact with you. If you're a guy wanting to meet a girl, um, <laughs> one of the best things you can do is buy a dog and just dog or a baby, huh? That's, well, <laughs> the baby yeah. may throw it off. Yeah, that's right. Um, but sure, it, it's um it's a segue into a human relationship. It gives you an interest in common. It gives you something to talk about. It's an icebreaker. Yeah. And for families that, uh, you know, and couples that don't have children, that don't necessarily plan on having children, it does become the baby. I've, and, and it does impact, like you mentioned in your article, there's a lot of planning that goes into this, what vacations we take, how long we go. All of it revolves around these dogs. Oh, sure. And when your dog gets old and sick, uh, I certainly have altered my travel plans when not taking a vacation, and I know lots of other people have done the same thing. And uh, so, yes, you you disrupt your life for your dog. Oh, boy. And um, I guess another thing about this is um, – is how we mourn. So that, I mean, there, there's the there's the falling in love with the animal side of this, but there's the other side of this about how we mourn this. Do, do we just overall underestimate the impact that the dog has? So when a dog passes, we don't seem to give the same respect, the same attention that maybe is warranted. 
Well, we do have this funny uh, sense of it. Even if you've owned a dog, when somebody else's dog dies, you know, that's, it's a dog. Yeah. It's not your dog. That's right. <laughs> and there's a big difference. And there is this, you know, you recognize that um, human life is different than animal life. And one should be valued more than the other. And so when you find yourself completely traumatized and sad and grief-stricken over the death of an animal, you feel a little embarrassed about that. I'm not saying you should, but you do, because the world kind of communicates to you that this is not of a magnitude of losing a family member. Right. And there must be something wrong with you if you're that devastated by it. And so there is no safety net out there to help you through this and tell you, you know, it's okay. We understand it's a normal grieving process. You just sort of have to, you know, put on the stiff upper lip and carry on and not make too big of a deal out of it. Yeah, maybe this is this is why the article serves and is so helpful because you know, let's let's try to normalize. I mean, there is still pain here. It, it, people aren't just emotional freaks because they have fallen in love with something or someone. Um, let's take a break. We're speaking again with Frank McAndrew, uh, and he is a professor of psychology at Knox College. You can find out more about his work on his website, frankmcandrew.com. We'll continue this discussion when we come back. Why losing a dog can be harder than losing a relative or a friend, and what we can do to help those that are going through this difficult time of losing a dog. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about uh, why losing a dog can be harder than losing a relative or a friend. It all comes from an article um, written by our guest, Dr. Frank McAndrew, who is the Cornelia H. Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College. He is an evolutionary psycho- social psychologist whose research is guided by the simple desire to make sense of everyday life. And who better to, to help us uh, talk about your dog? Again, I think you made a great point. First of all, Frank, thanks for being with us again. Yeah, happy to be here. But you make a great point. We fall in love with what we fall in love with. And if we fall in love with our dog, it it should be important to everyone around us. So if you think I'm important and my dog dies, then then you probably need to make my dog's death important too as well to me. It's about me. Well, that's right. And or at least acknowledge that I understand even though I don't feel the the loss like you do, I understand what you're going through. Yeah. And I think that's uh, people who haven't had that kind of relationship with an animal, uh, especially a dog, they don't understand it. Right. Know, it. It just seems like you're making a big deal out of nothing. Well, you I mean, I have relatives that are, you know, big outdoorsmen and they go through a lot of dogs because that's just part of being in the farm. And they look at you like it's a dog. But, you know, you take that same guy's horse mm-hmm. that is his best friend forever uh, and the horse dies, you know, we could all say the same thing. It's just a horse. Yep. But these are affections. These are, this is love. Yeah. And it's not like you're, it, it chooses you. You don't choose it. Do you sense, are we becoming softer? Are we becoming 
um, so empathic that animals are taking this place in our lives. I mean, we hear more and more stories about people leaving their fortune to their animal or, um, you know, spending a lot of money to help their animal, you know, instead of just euthanizing it, getting it, all of these treatments. Uh, is it is this is this elevating society in general? Do you see that as being positive for society? Well, I, I don't know that it's positive or negative, and I don't think people really feel any differently about the pet than they ever did. But we do have an awful lot of disposable resources at our uh, fingertips that we, throughout our history, didn't have. And so having the money and the resources that you can lavish on a pet makes it look like we feel differently about them now than we ever did before. Yeah, so true. I think the feelings are probably the same. We just have more stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, old yeller. Come on. Yep, that's right. That's that's an old story. It yep. it goes back. This isn't new. Um, interesting, though. Talk about the misnaming study because that does give us some insight into where the dogs fit into the hierarchy of our brain. I guess. Yeah, um, and then that actually was a study that supposedly had nothing to do with dogs. Yeah, it, it was a memory study designed to find out how people remember names and when they confuse names, what the thing is that makes you mistake one person for another. And in the process of doing the study on memory for names, they sort of accidentally discovered that when you're looking for the names of family members, the name of the family dog pops up. <laughs> and that didn't happen for the names of cats in the family. Yeah, And that signals something about where you store these things in your brain. So uh, when you start rummaging around in the trunk that says family, you find the dog in there. Hmm. Talk about the difference between, I mean, is there research on the difference between the dog, the cat, and I mean, some people get creeped out by the guy that has the boa constrictor around his neck, but (laughs) I'm assuming it's the same love for the boa as you might have for a cat or a dog. You know, Um, I don't know that anybody has really looked at that, and I don't deny that people will have strong affections for even a snake, but I don't think it's the two-way street that you get with the dog. Huh. You you may be be making people upset, Frank. I know that, and I've already gotten in (laughs) trouble for it, but... So explain why. Is it just because the dogs are, they're, they're, they're more intuitive to us? They're more into us? Yeah, that's exactly right. They're giving back... In a way, the boa constrictor's not. Um, I'm guessing the boa constrictor brain isn't lighting up with joy at seeing you, uh, unless you're trying to feed it, but then it isn't really about you, right? It's about the meal. Whereas the dog gets rewarded just by being with you. Interesting. Just touching the dog, uh, talking to the dog, the dog gets pleasure from your company in a way that I think most other animals don't. I think cats do, but, um, again, cats have not changed as much as dogs to uh, be our friends over the years. Well, and, uh, yeah, because it seems like a dog's faces and their facial expressions are so responsive to us as well. But you're saying their brain lights up. They're getting an actual chemical high by you, uh, val- or not validating it, but, but complimenting it, playing with it, giving it sure. attention. And giving it praise um, is rewarding for a dog uh, as much as food is. And giving praise to a cat doesn't have that same effect. Interesting. But boy, if the, if the cat could, if the dog could just learn to, to, you know, go in the doggy litter. Well, that would be nice. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you can't dream, I guess. Um, <laughs> talk about uh, what we can do to help people mourn. I mean, maybe some of this is just basic human 101. How do we mourn with those that are mourning the loss of an animal? Well, I, I think one little thing that can be done is to just sort of let people know that this is normal and that it's okay. I was really surprised at the number of people who contacted me after I wrote this essay um, who thanked me because they thought they were the only one. Hmm. There, are, there apparently are a lot of people who go through this terribly emotional event and they don't think other people have that same reaction. And they found it very comforting just to know that they weren't, there wasn't something wrong with them, that this was a normal human thing to do. And I think just making that a little more um, well-known for people kind of takes the pressure off them. They feel like there's something wrong with them, yeah. that, they're, that they're so upset. And just releasing them from that, I think, is helpful. That's, yeah. Just normalizing, which is, you know, kind of therapy 101. This is, this is normal love. This is life. This, this happens. I had, a, uh, I had a friend whose baby died of SIDS. And um, at, their, at their viewing for their baby, um, a person came up and said these very words, oh, you know, I, we know just how you feel because we just lost our family dog of 20 years last yeah. week. And so, so the comparison – was devastating, like, oh, yeah, a dog. Yeah, no, that's something, even if you feel that, you, that's you off. ought to know that's not something you say. Not the same. But that's somebody saying, I feel love and loss, and you feel love and loss. Um, I mean, I guess that's the thing, is we, we may not always know how to say it, but sometimes with, when someone's grieving, it's not even what you say. It's just, I guess, showing that you care. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think the person who said that was probably well-intentioned. Yeah, they were. But, but there was a little uh, social cluelessness there, I think. <laughs> Isn't it? It's, but this is grieving. Do you, do you feel like overall we grieve well as Americans? Do we do this well? I don't think so. Um, we don't – well, we don't think about death. Or we, we try not to think we about it. We try to avoid it. Yeah, that's right. And um, – and it's healthy to not think about death because it gets in the way of life. If all you're doing is planning for the end of it all, it kind of sucks the motivation out of you, right? Yeah. But um, that means when it does happen, we're sort of unprepared for it. We've been in denial. We try not to think about it because it's unpleasant. So if you uh, you said before, uh, people sometimes don't even want to get a dog because they know it's going to die someday. Well, yeah, you can't walk around for 12 or 14 years with your dog every day thinking, oh, he's going to die, he's going to yeah. die, yeah. because it, it undermines the joy that you get from the day-to-day life of the dog. So you kind of postpone what you know is going to happen. Um, Bill Cosby used to tell a, a funny story about he always wanted a dog when he was a kid, and um, the father would always say, well, we can't get a dog because it'll die and you'll feel really sad. And I don't want you to go through that. And then uh, he replied, oh, no, no, we promise, you know, if the dog dies, we won't feel sad. And then the father responded, well, if you won't feel bad enough uh, to grieve when your dog is dead, you don't deserve to have a dog. So <laughs> no matter how he, he went at it, he wasn't going to get a dog. Yeah. Is it um, – I mean, I know, too, it seems like with with an aging senior population – that it might be a good idea that people reach out more to animals and pets as a way to, to just have a have a companion, have somebody buy them. I mean, it, does it really? It seems like it would help seniors not feel so lonely. 
Yeah, I mean, all, all the evidence that we have indicates that it's all positive. Um, you know, the, that people um, enjoy the company of animals. They do have healthy side effects for people, especially if you don't have much of a human social network. Uh, they're increasingly being used in nursing homes as sort of, you know, just walk a couple of dogs through there and everybody perks up. Mm. Um, and it brings them together, too. It gives them something to talk about. They reminisce about dogs they had when they were younger. So uh, it isn't always just about the dog. The dog is just a vehicle for other kinds of social experiences. Yeah. This whole thing began, Frank, with you losing your dog. Um, has it, you know, have, have you thought about getting another one? Are you there yet? And where, you know, what have you learned overall about dogs? Well, uh, this is going to be my wife's decision. Um, I know we will get another dog. She was even more attached, I think, to the dog than I was and is still very much grieving. It's been about six months now. Mm. And um, we're not ready to get another one yet because it isn't that dog. Yeah, Yeah, right. It would be unfair to the new dog. Um, The last time this happened, we went about two and a half years uh, before we went out and got another dog. And so I know that day will come. But um, she's in the driver's seat on this one. Yeah. I know we're going to do it, and whenever she's ready, that's when we'll do it. Oh, that's great. And again, I mean, sorry for your loss, and yet your loss has actually probably opened up a discussion that might create more healing for everyone else. Yeah, I think it's been, in the long run, um, good in some ways, but of course, devastating in others. Oh, yeah. Frank T. McAndrews is his name. Go check out his website, uh, frankmcandrew.com. Frank, thanks again for being with us. We'll have you back on your next topic. Okay, thank you very much. You bet. Take care. FrankMcAndrew.com. Great, uh, just a great writer and gets us thinking about some things that, you know, let's be careful about judging another person's, you know, source of affection, their dog, their cat, their boa constrictor. Everyone's different. Uh, Powerful life. If you've ever had a dog, you know, they can be your best friend. We'll take a break, my friends. We'll come back, continue the discussion about some of the wacky, we call it empty news, the Matt Townsend News, stories from people around the globe. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Terry, do you have a dog? No. But you're going to get one. Your boy wants a dog. Oh, of course. He's always like, Dad, get a dog. No, I don't want a dog because who gets to take care of the dog? Dad. Your boy would. No, Dad takes care of the dog. Well, yeah, but you don't have to be a dog hog. You can share the dog. I was a kid. I promised I'd take care of the dog. Dad took care of the dog. I know how this works. (laughs) But when will the boy ever learn? I'd also have to fix the fence in the backyard. Yeah. And then you'd have to go clean up after the dog because the kid wouldn't do it. You know what would be great is if you could get a dog that you could train to clean up after itself. Bingo. We had a lady the other day stop and just knock on our door and say, do you have a bag? My dog just used the, uh, you know, used the facilities on your neighbor's yard and we want to pick that up. And we're like, sure. And we gave him a bag and then they're like, can we put it in your garbage can? Wow. We're like, come on. <laughs> take care we don't home. even own a dog. <laughs> now you're making us take care of your dog. Come on. Hey, um, you know, dogs are great. Let's uh, let's go to another topic, though. Uh, you know, cops, bad boys, 
There's some pretty bad stuff going on. Um, Nashville, listen to this, a shooting spurred by the wrong pizza toppings. People are so uptight. These are people that need a dog. Three teenagers are accused of firing gunshots from a car at a market in Nashville, Tennessee, Hmm. because they were given a pizza with the wrong toppings. Well, I mean, they have an honest reason, right? Well, is it? I mean, who who has They messed up their pizza. I know, but who hasn't had that happen? The shots were fired at the market from a white Honda Accord that was, by the way, reported stolen. Accord's the most stolen vehicle. Yes. I'm about to buy another one. Nice. Good job. (laughs) Play right into their plan. Yes. Sure. Steal my car. (laughs) A North Precinct undercover detective was conducting surveillance in the area and witnessed the gunfire at 2 p.m. Police said the detective then followed the car to a house while uh, calling for backup. Three teens in the vehicle were taken into custody. During the interviews, one of the suspects allegedly stated the shots were directed at the market because the clerk had given them the pizza with the incorrect toppings. Nowhere in the story did it mention the toppings, so we don't know if it's something as as controversial, as polarizing as pineapple. Yeah, or was it something as we've already done as the pepperoni? study on the show that pineapple is absolutely accepted as a, a topping. It's worth it unless you're the president of Iceland. That's right. And then it should be outlawed if he had the power. Apparently is it worth five to ten years to go shoot over? Hey, they need to learn a lesson. <laughs> you know, you, you get the pizza toppings correct the first time. Yeah. Look, uh, I shouldn't have to teach you this lesson, but yeah. uh, if you're not going to get the toppings right, I'm going to have to shoot at you. <laughs> shoot your building up. That's crazy. Uh, man arrested after allegedly trying to pull over sheriff's deputy oh. using fake police lights. Not the best tactic. We've talked about this. If you're going to, in you know, in, in what's the word? If you're going to impersonate a police mm. officer. Please make sure you're not pulling over a police officer. Ugh. It's always awkward. 21-year-old California man was arrested on suspicion of impersonating a police officer after he tried to pull over a sheriff's deputy last Tuesday. Authorities said Johnny Issa Sellers was arrested Tuesday night by the Riverside County Sheriff's Department about 12.30 p.m. To, uh, Tuesday, a sheriff's deputy was uh, driving a personally owned vehicle when the white Dodge Dart pulled up behind him. That's the first little you yeah. know, signal to go off Dodge yeah. Dart. They don't drive Dodge Darts. They all drive <laughs> Dodge Chargers. Yeah. Well, unless you're maybe you're just a rookie. Maybe you're like oh. new on the force. You get the pinto of the fleet. Give him the give him the dart. Give him the dart. It's not charger material. <laughs> the dart had emergency lights and a siren activated, including two flashing lights in the upper windshield area. Huh. The deputy said an audible police style siren was also used by the dart. The deputy did not pull over, instead contacted the Riverside County Sheriff's Dispatch Center. The dart passed the deputy's car and drove on, but the deputy took a photo of the car and its license plate. After an investigation, the car was found with LED light strips in the upper windshield area mm. of the public address and, and a public address system that was installed. There you go. The vehicle's registered owner was arrested on suspicion of misdemeanor impersonating a police officer. He didn't even pull over. Huh. He just knew. That's a dart. Yeah. No one drives a dart. Those aren't our lights. I'm just going to drive on. Huh. That's a gutsy cop. I probably would have pulled over. You could have compared badges. And then. Oh, you have one too? Yeah. And then when the guy was about to take my ID, (laughs) click, I would have just put a handcuff on him. Busted. Dart. If you're going to impersonate a police officer, do you wear a mustache? Oh, yeah. Is that just prerequisite? Well, you need a badge or a mustache. Okay. Cole knows that. Cole used to wear those creepy mustaches here on Mustache November. Movember. 
Um, yeah, you, you wear that and you also tase people. You know, that's what I would have done. I would have tased this fake cop. Every cop has to be able to take a tase. Right. I've seen some, uh, my local police department, that's how they bring in the rookies. After oh, they yeah. finish their rookie training, that's how they... everyone gathers around and they all watch them get tased. Because they want all the police officers to feel what, yeah. what, it, what it's like to use the that's weapon. That's what they say, huh? But it's usually just a way to laugh at the new guy. Yeah, it's, it's hazing. loses their mind. As it's they hazing. Hey, watch the new guy. Get electrocuted. Oh, boy. We ought to check on that. I wonder if Jeff, hmm. because it was the weekend, Jeff yeah. said he had a lot of stuff to do around the home. Right. We might want to check to make sure Jeff's alive because he's not great at home improvement stuff. He texted me last night. Okay. There was a little bit of a communication that happened, so I think we're okay. So he didn't electrocute himself again? No. Okay. He says he just wasn't feeling well. Okay. You might want to just look into that. Which, okay. Just I'm just saying, he almost burnt down his home. So it's either bad home improvement problem. Yeah. He electrocuted himself. Right, right, right. Nail gun issue, something of that nature, or... A bounce house related sickness. Yeah, infection picked up at the local bounce house. Maybe staff or something. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese has a whole new meaning. Uh, we'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach. Your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. And uh, boy, oh boy, buckle in. We got a great show today. We're going to be talking uh, surveillance. And intelligence. Two things many would say this show lacks. Yes. Surveillance? Yeah, surveillance. And intelligence. Don is always watching. Don, Don is always, uh, yeah. I think I think my phones are bugged because I can't work them at all. My phones. What? Well, just hmm. they, people call and I'm like... Apparently my phone's ringing. Clean, clean the crumbs off it once in a while, yeah. and you'll get cockroaches off of it. Yeah, I just use my. It's, I use it as a sandwich holder. It's, it's, all, just, that, it's all that peanut butter. A lot of peanut butter on that thing. Hey, uh, got a great um, show too. We're going to talk uh, just back, so we got to talk about what happened to him. Do we? Yeah. Oh. Jeff got a little stomach bug. A little. Uh, it was more, Georgia, I would rum, say it was rum, more than that. Rumbly tummy. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. This wasn't. My tummy feels bad. I'm not coming in. This was, I can't do anything but lay in bed and visit a special room Told in the you. house. Tough weekend. Wow. Celebrating his birthday. Was it? Um, it was the bounce house. Was it something you made? Did you make something? No, it was something the the good folks at, we'll just say it rhymes with uh, Blilly's. I want my baby back, baby back, baby <laughs> And it wasn't ribs. Yeah, it was. Okay, good. It was a salad of all things. That's, oh, Salad's wow. supposed to make oh. you feel good. No, yeah, no, no, no. Well. Salad. Uh... <laughs> the first and probably last time I'll uh, ever have a shrimp salad. Oh, boy. There are so many good jokes here. Let's go back to my, my rule of you're in a landlocked area of the country eating fish. Yeah. 
Not even eh. fish. Well, bottom I, bottom yeah, feeders. Bottom feeders that the fish would eat. That's yeah. Let's just say this will not be considered one of the salad days. It won't? No. Yeah. By the way, this, uh, uh, this segment is sponsored by <laughs> Salad Shooter. Love from, my salad shooter. From Blilly's. I grate cheese with it. Um, wow. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That's too bad. I yeah. really am. I'm sorry. And that... I'm sorry. I'm sorry it had to go through me. <laughs> There's nothing worse than that. There really isn't. I mean, that, and especially salad, honestly. Hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not appealing usually anyway. But, uh, okay. Well, we're glad you, you're back. You found that really funny. I still do. I have yeah. a lot that I want to say, but I'm just holding back. All right, well. Hey, um, <laughs> by the way, uh, we are now, just so you know, if you're following the show, we're now in the middle of opening exercises. <laughs> we're doing our opening exercises. I was typing that up last night. I'm like, yeah, we'll just call this opening exercises. <laughs> so one of a, who's giving the invocation? That will be Terry. Okay. <laughs> but, and I'll, be, pres- I'll did, be presiding. You just did the announcements. Uh-huh. The announcements are done. Now we, we let's now get, separate for classes. Yeah. Uh, Just a little uh, throwback to church right there. Can anybody volunteer to take Jeff to the hospital just in case? When when was your last episode? We're going to send around a sign-up sheet. Yeah. But everyone Uh, will ignore. As a doctor, when was your last episode? Yesterday, thankfully. What time yesterday? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think think after noon it kind of cleared up. When did the fever break? So staying home was a great idea yeah. because you wouldn't want somebody no. running the board running out every five seconds. That's kind of like me when I drink a lot of water, mm. but without the fever and the shakes and the chills. Yeah. Well, we're glad you're back. And uh, you couldn't be back in better time because today we're talking about surveillance, Chelsea Manning, and the whole – does Chelsea Manning – do you remember? She's the one uh, that President Obama just commuted her sentence. She had a 35 yeah. – seven – I think it was seven years to 35-year sentence. He commuted the sentence after seven years. She's gone through enough. Done. Now, a lot of people aren't liking that because, you know, intelligence is important and a lot of people's lives were messed up because of her decision to expose things. She signed – documents when she took the position that she had that gave her access to the intelligence that if she did that thing she would go to jail yeah and so they sent her to jail and now she's out people have a have an issue with that they're not liking that and but so the bigger story is the government keeps talking about whistleblowers we right. wanted to, last night the, it was the house intelligence committee uh, chairman nunez said we want to hear from the whistleblowers <laughs> and everyone's like really because you not just me. put us in jail yeah. you know and then they get mad because people are leaking well, I mean, I guess it's different to be a whistleblower than a leaker. Is it? Yeah. I mean, you know, to, to whistleblow, you would <laughs> well, go to authorities, to judges. You would go to the proper authority leaking. Jeff, tell us what leak. <laughs> don't. <laughs> tell us. No, no, no. That's bad. I was going to say, you know, Terry, how you mentioned that she signed those documents. She yeah. didn't keep up her end of the bargain. She so didn't. it sounds pretty cut and dry, unlike my weekend. This is going to be all day. <laughs> I got nothing to say. Yeah. So, yeah. But the, the other problem is her uh, the leaking of these documents now means there's going to be more surveillance because now they have to surveil these employees more than ever. Now you can't. You're going to be – they're going to watch everything. Right. <laughs> they're going to watch everything. There's no SimCity on your government phone anymore. Oh, by the way, the city's doing great. Great. 
glad to hear. Townsend Abbey, uh, up to about 120,000 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Have you raised taxes yet? No, I, I don't think I'm allowed to raise taxes. Really? It kind of raises them on their own. But my people, not to brag, 100% happy. <laughs> wow. That's great. 100%. What, Wrong. Have you dropped any chemicals in the water supply to no, achieve have, this No, I haven't number? done that. No. Okay. Everyone's happy. One reason is I, I have a moratorium on building. I've oh. stopped building because if I, if I build, I have to buy more – I have to buy more firehouses, more yep, police yep. stations, yep. more schools. So I'm kind of done building. I'm just going to grow by improving services. For yeah, now. I think you hit on a key word there, improve. So stop trying to build new things and just improve the things that already you, are not working. You can't improve on 100% so happiness. So you're going with infrastructure. Yeah. And we opened the beaches. Nice. We just put a merry-go-round out there. Even though there's a, a shark that's been... Do you have a plan circling for the, the shore there? A yeah. plan for when the whale shows up on the on the beach? Um, no. San Diego's yeah. had some issues with yeah, that. No. Other, okay. But we're not going to blow it up, okay. and we're not also going to. We're just going to tow it back out. That's always yeah. been my plan. That's your plan. You're you don't right. you don't haul the whale off to the dump right through the town. See, no, I, I was more chop it up and take it off to the dump. Right. You you wanted to pull this thing out to the ocean. Just haul it back out into the ocean yeah. and then feed the fish. Well, isn't feed the fish? Isn't whale meat supposed to be pretty good? Yeah, high in fat too. Have you ever had a shrimp salad at BB's? <laughs> Billy's, 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 great salad. It's great. I'm like no. <laughs> Jeff, do you want you want to go to lunch for a salad today? We'll do a salad. No, I will not. <laughs> you know the funny? The last time this happened to me, yeah, also a salad. Yeah. Oh, I can't eat salad. I can't stand this stuff. Shoots right through you. Not for me. Get a get a porterhouse in there. That's not moving. Oh yeah. Anyway, we'll get to that fun. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? House Intelligence Committee Chairman David Nunez claims he visited the White House grounds the night before he publicly revealed that there was incidental surveillance on individuals connected to President Donald Trump. Nunez told CNN that nobody else at the White House knew he was there. In a statement, the committee's communications director says Nunez met with sources at the White House grounds in order to have proximity to a secure location where he could view the information provided by the source. Last week, Nunez mysteriously left an Uber cab and went to an undisclosed location the night before he made the revelation, keeping even his own staff in the dark about his whereabouts. He wow. told CNN that it had, it had nothing to do with Russia. Senator John McCain on Representative Nunez. Do you think it was appropriate that he went to go view these so-called intelligence reports on White House grounds? Well, I think there needs to be a lot of explaining to do. I've been around for quite a while, and I've never heard of any such thing. And uh, Obviously, uh, in a committee like an intelligence committee, you've got to have bipartisanship. Otherwise, the committee loses uh, uh, credibility. And so uh, there's so much out there that needs to be explained by the chairman. And uh, it's turning into a centipede like these things have a tendency of doing. And another shoe seems to drop every few days. Now, I'm not sure, is the centipede wearing the shoes or... <laughs> How many shoes does the centipede have? By the way, I think he took an Uber car uh, driven by Yuri Korshnikov. Could have been. Centipede is a great video game, too. Wonderful. Yeah, great game. So this story would be much better if it was... It, they're trying to make it into a spy novel. Yeah. The, there's different members of the press who are really looking into this, like he did more than just go to a secure location and look at some papers. 
But uh, apparently he went to a secure location and looked at papers. But no, but nobody at the White House knew he was there. No, they're, and they're they're which, like, which Secret so, Service should be seriously worried, right? And they're like, did he get a background check? And Sean Spicer yesterday goes, I'm not sure if uh, members of Congress need background checks to come onto the White House, you know, you know, grounds or anything. And he's like, I mean, he was just using just our walk in the door special room. So, I don't know. Weird. The whole thing's weird. It seems like it's more to do about nothing. Yeah. but it's interesting. Yeah. So uh, President Trump took to Twitter again last night. To to say that uh, the Trump's Russia story is a hoax, and he questioned why the White House or why the House Intelligence Committee isn't looking in, into the Clintons more. <laughs> Back to the hey, Back hey to that. what about the what about Nixon? What's going on? What's with going everyone on with Nixon? Else? President Trump's approval ratings hit a new low Monday with just thirty six percent of Uh-oh. Americans approving of his performance. This is from the people at Gallup. Last week they put out the uh, poll. If you remember, he hit a new low at thirty seven. How low so can you go? He is achieving greatness every yeah. week. In the wrong direction. A notorious bank which acts as a front for Russian espionage is now part of the investigation into contacts between President Trump's administration officials and the Russian government. Oh boy. This time it's Mr. Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner who will be questioned by the Senate investigators about his meeting with uh, Russia's VEB Bank. Who? The bank used to be chaired by Russian President Vladimir Putin, and because it has funded so many of Putin's pet projects, it needed to be bailed out recently by the Russian government. Wow. So it's just getting crazy. It's also, it was also one of the banks sanctioned by the U.S. government after the alleged intrusions yeah. into our uh, elections that they were be currently being investigated. Oh, so yeah. fun times, fun times. And finally, NFL owners on Monday approved the Oakland Raiders request to move to Las Vegas. All but one franchise, the Miami Dolphins, voted in favor of the move. I don't know why the Dolphins would be What's the lone holdout, but whatever. The Raiders are expected to stay in Oakland for at least the next two seasons, though while the new stadium was built in Nevada. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, I think, made multiple 11th-hour efforts to try to keep the team from leaving. A $1.9 billion stadium is due to open in 2020 and the Raiders are expected to share it with the University of Las Vegas because UNLV has a horrible stadium and you know, <laughs> might as well upgrade it while they're there. The San Diego Chargers will uh, also be moving to LA if you forgot that was happening. Wow, you know, I'm, it's too bad for Oakland really because that's got to be devastating to lose a team like that. Yes, but their stadium is bad. Yeah, My wife and I were there for our honeymoon. Because we were really well, we stayed kind of on the Oakland side, and then went yeah. to San Francisco to. Sounds do a little bit more stuff. for you than it was for her. What do you mean? Um, going to Oakland uh, to the stadium? No, no, no. That's where the where you, the Bart. Oh yeah, Bay Area Transit. Yeah. There, that's you where it would it stop, yeah. and then our hotel would oh, pick us I up. Oh, I thought there you actually went back. to the stadium. No, I don't really care. It's just a horrible neighborhood. Yeah, yeah it's a tough. We're both standing there like we're going to die. Do they have a Chili's? Uh, they probably have multiple locations, and they all have shrimp salad. I love the shrimp salad. Now, it would be fresher on the West Coast than it would be it the would Rocky be, Mountains, honestly, but that's fine. It really would. You know, Oakland still has the A's, yeah, so they they've do. got that going for them. Don't they play in the same stadium? Yes. I don't, it's a horrible, horrible stadium. I've heard that. Yeah. You know, if you There's YouTube videos of it would rain, and all of a sudden the dugouts would flood. Oh, really? And the water just runs into the locker rooms. And the, the NFL uh, during NFL games, they're standing underneath the stadium watching water just run through the stadium. I hate, it's hate flooding. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be fine. Just relax, man. Relax. Hey. Um, Later on today, yeah. I have two stories of job openings. Oh, are you looking for a job? No, not me. But, you know, it's a, sometimes for people, it's a, it's a tough time. You yeah. need some employment okay. opportunities. I have two some examples job of jobs you may want. Yeah. Not sure if you do, but possibly. I, had, I hear the salad bar person at Lily's. Yeah. 
He's looking for a new job. Yeah, they're uh, that's interesting. cleanliness issues. We will get to that. We'll get to all that fun straight ahead. Um, but, oh, by the way, and Jeff brought this up to me, which I thought was really fun. Um, Lady Gaga's birthday today. It's a Gaga birthday. I think uh, your first birthday's words, too. Gaga. Gaga. She's got some great songs, though. Happy birthday, Lady Gaga. What do you What do you do if you're Lady Gaga for your birthday? Hmm. Shrimp salad. Ooh. At blue. Yeah. Get a new meat suit, at, uh, and then go to Blilly's, that restaurant. Anyway, we got to take you to lunch, Jeffrey. Let's Celebrate. not go to Blilly's. Let's go to Fendi's. Fendi's. Yeah. I like their Rosties. <laughs> not dropping any brand names today. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. All right, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking surveillance and the government and surveillance. You know, with all of these leaks, does that mean more surveillance is needed? Stick with us. We'll be back. Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Bradley Manning, was a U.S. soldier as, uh, who was disgruntled with how the American military was handling themselves overseas. Manning then copied and posted hundreds of thousands of classified documents um, onto the Internet, although the release of information has had relatively uh, lasting damage to the American diplomacy. Um, the documents talking about prisoners' torture and assassination squads enraged Americans across the country. But uh, here's, the, here's the, the, the question. And we hear about leaking all the time now, even more so with uh, President Trump and, um, you know, Edward Snowden. We hear all of these stories. But what has all of this leaking done to the government? Now it seems like the government is actually needing to surveil more people in order to protect those people from leaking, right? So now is surveillance now going up because of these leaks? Today we have Dr. Sanjay Goyle, uh, an associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Albany, SUNY, to talk a little bit about this subject with us. He wrote an article, Is Part of Chelsea Manning's Legacy Increased Surveillance? Uh, Dr. Goyle, thank you so much for being with us today. Yep, it's my pleasure. This is such a... um, it's such a, I guess, appropriate discussion now with more and more talk about leaks with President uh, Trump and what's going on there. But we also hear of Edward Snowden. We hear of WikiLeaks and um, and uh, Chelsea Manning. When you when you look at this, well, I guess first of all, what are you seeing? Is is surveillance? Are we getting better at this business? Or are we just learning to surveil more? Or what are we doing? So first, let's look at the problem, right? Given the electronic media, fast transmission, and easy-to-copy devices with large uh, uh, data volumes, uh, it's becoming easier and easier to copy data and leak data. And uh, in the leaks have always happened, you know, for hundreds of years, right? right? But the leaks were very targeted, very brief for limited amounts of data. But now with easy-to-copy data, data available everywhere, leaks are easy to happen. And so any... Anybody, any insider can basically take information and reveal it outside without much difficulty. And so what happened in case of Manning was that he had access to all this information and he copied them on CDs. 
So there was surveillance, but uh, he basically created a new vector in which he copied it on music CD that nobody suspected him, and he took the information out. Mm. Where, where did he? Where did he then put all the information? Well, I mean, there are so many different ways of putting it. I mean, the main source of information out today is WikiLeaks. Right. And so, you know, they basically take the information which other people provide and display it to the public. And, uh, you know, there are several issues here. You know, the public has a right to know, you know, what's going on. And at the same time, you are under an oath of the government to protect the information that you're entrusted to. So there are morality issues here. Right. Who's right, who is wrong is a very difficult question to answer. But the thing is, what is the aftermath of this now? Do you sense that um, with President Obama commuting his sentence after his time served, which was seven years of a 35-year sentence, does it? do you sense that it, it softens the impact of what these, you know, what taking, I mean, these documents and leaking these documents, is, is it changing the the consequences that we would suffer for doing such a thing? Well, you know, deterrence is an important uh, message for people that, look, if somebody else got punished very severely, other people are not going to do it. But people are strongly willed. In cases, people are still going to do it. But the whole culture is changing now. I mean, in the past, so while he revealed the information that he wanted to reveal, but this has made it harder for anybody else to do it because there's much more increased surveillance, in, not only in government agencies, but even in private companies now. So, you know, you could easily put your th- thumb drive anywhere and copy data. Now everything is watched. People are doing keystroke logging and seeing what their em- employees are doing. They're doing behavioral analysis to find out what people are doing. So I think as and when new vectors are discovered, people come up with their defenses. And the same thing has happened in this case. So insider threats have become one of the largest research challenges now mm. to find out how to detect insiders before they actually commit. So, so are, I guess now then, as as we see more and more threats, um, now it's more now more and more we need to surveil those that might be possible threats. So really, we're creating more and more of a surveillance culture. Well, okay, now, there are two separate things, right? Surveillance is going on innocent people and getting their information whom you don't need to go. But if you're working inside a company, the company has a right or the government has a right to find out that its information is protected. So it's surveillance within the organization that has been stepped up. And so, you know, one one of the projects we are working on is basically identifying using honey tokens to find out if people have propensity to steal information. And a lot of such projects are going on around the country to basically understand or identify the threat before it happens. And uh, th- this was this is a logical consequence of what happened. The new threat vector was discovered. And now, you know, there's a lot of research money that is being spent on understanding how to counter this threat. Did Have you seen the movie Snowden? Yes, I have. It, is that, I mean, because you, you notice the, the, the um, advanced um, screenings they do on these people that work in these situations, like you're talking about the research now on who's more likely to leak, is I guess is there any way to really create a, a leak-free environment? Is that possible? Can that even be expected anymore? Yeah. So you know, people have talked about having perfect cybersecurity. I mean, that's not even a possibility. I mean, you are going to get breached, inside is going to get leaked. There are two things which we need to do: gain more visibility into your networks. The networks have become so dense and that people don't even have any idea who's coming in, who's leaving, who's copying data. So the gone are the days when we could live with perimeter defense that, you know, we would just put a big wall around our secure networks right. and keep people out. 
first of all, people can break their perimeter wall very easily through uh, through basically using phishing attacks and whatnot, breaking through the defense barriers. So the perimeter wall is just a deterrent. It really does not stop many attacks. And so gaining visibility into the network, that is becoming the key security paradigm, that you things are going to happen, you detect them as soon as possible, and then you you contain the damage. And if you look at a lot of the major attacks that have happened, OPM, and again, the attack by the Iranians on uh, cyber-physical systems around the world, they all lasted for a long time yeah. without being detected from weeks to months to even years. And I think that's, that's where the security paradigm has changed, from the perimeter wall onto network visibility, to detection and containment. Yeah, that's what they'd always say, right, is keep them out. But the reality of that perimeter wall yeah. being able to sustain that, that doesn't happen. So now it's it's even who's downloading what. The minute you're seeing certain files moving, you, you now have people noticing those files are starting to move. And, I mean, and then I guess even, even then surveilling some of these, uh, I, I guess surveilling some of the employees outside of work as well. Is that is that picking up as well? Well, that's, uh, well, I don't think surveilling, there, there are laws against it. I mean, so as, so there is some surveillance outside, but mainly we're using wiretap laws. Mm. And, you know, with permission and court orders, yes, people are being surveilled. I do not think people are being illegally surveyed without, without court orders and wiretaps. I mean, there's a lot of brouhaha that is going on around uh, the Trump leaks and surveillance yeah. and whatnot. But I think there were pro- proper court orders obtained for any of that work. And if there is surveillance done outside of the country and uh, there is somebody from the U.S. and all, and those are picked up as well. Hmm. either inadvertently. For instance, if you're surveilling a Russian agent, right, and somebody from the U.S. communicates with them, that conversation is picked up as well. And but, so, but the inf- well, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is, this is important. I mean, because it's one thing to be, you know, spying or, or taking these records from the federal government or the Defense Department or, you know, I mean, that's, there you go. Now you're in really big trouble. You're also in trouble, though, I mean, now companies have to protect their own databases, um, and that creates a whole other level, right, of, of a threat is a company losing its, its, own, its own data, losing its own customer base, losing its own, um, you know, its own research and development. Yeah. Some of the earlier attacks that came in really were about after intellectual property. I mean, either intellectual property or getting the names of dissidents from other countries which have a more authoritarian governments. And so companies have geared up. As a matter of fact, companies are probably leading the charge are they? on insider threats. So there's one company I work with. You know, everything is locked down. They, they have software in there which can figure out any file movement. They can figure out if somebody is using a thumb drive, what files they're accessing, how they're accessing it. Hmm. And so that's increased a lot because companies have a lot at stake. Yeah. And there, there are a variety of reasons why people steal from companies. You know, first of all, they, they get angry, disgruntled. Well, you know, somebody else was promoted instead of them. They get greedy, and sometimes there are people, foreign agents, who are just patriotic to their own countries who want to steal information and bring it back. Hmm. Do we do so we they, need a better system for them to report? You know, like some independent body that they could go to as a watchdog and turn information in instead of sending it to WikiLeaks or, I mean, it, where because it is, I mean, it, it, people can die because of this information getting out. Well, absolutely. I mean, some are, there are a lot of our secret service agents whose information gets, if they, it gets stolen, 
their lives are in danger. Yeah. So yes, in the OPM hack for that reason was dangerous because a lot of people on there had, uh, we, well, the security clearances were on there as well. And so that means that they probably are people of importance. They can be targeted to be spies for other mm. countries. You could always be more surveilled in the future, curtailing their activities. So a lot of things can happen, and we have to be careful. I mean, look, uh, exposing information to the public is, is good. People need to know. But at the same time, you need to protect government information as well. Yeah. Because you, there's a reason you are entrusted with information. And so you need to hold your, your end of the bargain. And so it's a hard morality question, but at the same time, you know, you, you have taken an oath to protect the information that right. given to you. So, so really, 35 years for the oath you took and the responsibility you were given, that's a fair, a fair sentence. Oh, well, okay. Now, I'm not a legal mind, but uh, the reason these sentences are given as a deterrent to other people. And uh, so I think we got enough publicity that we are able to identify people and hold them responsible. That itself is a big deterrent. Yeah. No, yeah. and, uh, but, you know, the exact level of the sentence, should it be 35, 25, 50, 10, I, it's really hard for me to comment on that. I mean, people feel differently about it. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, the reason that it was done is because he was really not a happy soul going, going through life. Yeah. And so for a variety of reasons, he had emotional issues, psychological issues. So it's a very complicated matter, you know, what was the right thing to do? And, well, I mean, because uh, it, it's a big deal, too, right? Because uh, Edward Snowden would love to probably come back to the U.S. <laughs> and have a seven-year sentence. And, um, you know, people it's, – it's a, it's a really – it really is. It's a very complicated uh, thing. Yeah. And I think if anyone would go watch Snowden, you'd start to realize – this is a. This isn't going away. This is the future um, of yeah. the cyber world. Let's take a break, Sanjay, and come back. Continue this discussion about increased surveillance and government uh, surveillance as well. We're speaking with Dr. Sanjay Goyal, who is a professor, associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Albany, SUNY, to uh, uh, help us through this very complicated issue. Stick with us. Talking surveillance and intelligence. We'll be back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Sanjay Goyle, an associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Albany, SUNY, and he is uh, talking us and walking us through increased surveillance and and the problem the government, I guess, and and even corporate America has today. When you think about the fact that, um, boy, people can come in now, have access to all of your records, all of the information, and then you know steal it, download it. They can do it, you know, in in a in a tech in a desire to you know negatively impact. They can spy. They can just try to be a whistleblower, trying to point out certain things that the government is doing. But uh, the government has a response, and they're they're trying to crack down a little bit on on sir on um, on intelligence and protecting the information that we do have. Doctor Goyle, again, thank you for being with us. Yep, my pleasure again. So when you talk about like the federal government now, give us give us some more. I mean, because this is this is a huge 
this is a huge uh, amount of data that the government has to protect. And we, we've heard story after story about how, you know, even the IRS is using computers that are and systems that are 50 years old. Is is the government up to speed to really stop these hacks and to keep people from from spreading this stuff, this information? Right. So I think if you look at what has happened, if you if you look at the how we have evolved through the Internet, right? We had the era of the Internet about 20 years ago when Internet was really the big driver behind efficiency. So we took all of our systems, the government and the private sector, integrated them together so that they were all a single monolithic system where it was easy to query data, easy to basically do analysis. The same integration is now hurting us, right? Right. So, so instead of having siloed data that if somebody were to break in, only a piece of the data was compromised, given the interconnectivity that we have created among all the data sets we have, we compromise the whole thing. So one of the things which the government is doing is it's rethinking its data. And, and also the private sector. Instead of you know basically having a single connected monolithic mass, they're siloing the data again. So that's where the architecture is changing. That, hey, look, we need to independently protect data. And the second thing which is extremely important is given the volume of data that we are generating, we need to make sure what we really need to protect and what we need to protect. Mm. Because not everything is equally valuable. And it's the expenses, there are a lot of expenses. It's very costly to secure everything at a very high level. So we need to start being very, very careful what we need to protect. And the third thing is data proliferation. The same data can be available in seven different places through copying and whatnot. Right. We need to make sure that we maintain data at the source and we don't let it proliferate along different things. And a lot of these things are happening. The government is aware of that. But again, look at how integrated we are with the systems. It's a huge expense. And people don't want the disruption of services. So at best, you know, we can create parallel systems and migrate them over, but it takes time to do all of this. So we are aware of all of this, but the investment that is required to make it more secure. And people will, again, once you make it more secure, it's a cat and mouse game. They will find other ways to break into right. it. So it's a constant, constantly evolving process. We have already gone away from perimeter defense to gaining more visibility. Now we are siloing our data systems into multiple uh, connected parts, but just connected, each of them is protected individually. And so over time, security is going to evolve. Boy, and you, you can almost see, too, the redundancy of it. So if my, if my information is being copied by the government and shared in three or four different places, that same information is, may cost four times more to protect. And really, it's not any more protected. It's actually right. less protected. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The more sources you create, the more vulnerability there is. Right. <clears throat> It seems like the healthcare world, because you were saying how the corporate America really is seems to be leading out in this, and it seems like the healthcare world that's trying to figure out how to keep all of our health records, um, you know, protected, and and it, it seems like they would be a great leader in this field as well. Well, yes, and I completely agree with that. I mean, healthcare has has a lot of data to protect, but again. You know, one of the things we need to think about is that, look, we all want our privacy, right? Data privacy. Yeah. But there is a value to privacy as well, right? If you're on your deathbed and, you know, your doctor needs information about about you to be able to make you better, do you really care about privacy? Right, no. So, exactly. So, there is a cost of privacy. There's a context to privacy. We have forgotten all of that. Either we pro- protect everything in all situations similarly. So, we need to start nuancing these things. We need to create a privacy index. At some point, it may be good to let the privacy go. For instance, 
another thing is security versus privacy, right? Can we compromise some uh, privacy to gain more security? Yeah. That, that's the other question we have. So these, there are no easy answers to these things. We need to make some fundamental changes, right? So one of the biggest things which we never want to do is take away the anonymity of the Internet, right? Make everything traceable on the Internet. Who is sending what where? Then all, now, yeah, then all of a sudden, yeah, you've got them because you, but, there's, no, there's transparency. But then what do we lose? That a lot of people who are not, are not able to express themselves without this Internet will not be able to do that anymore. Right, right. now people are able to be dissidents. They are able to express views about governments and whatnot without fear of being caught. So, again, there is no hard and fast rule. The Internet, the, the integration has provided us with a lot of services which will never go back. So the question is, where is the right balance? Mm. So each and every question you come to, it's a question of balance, right? right? What's the balance between convenience and security? What is the balance between privacy and security? What's the balance between productivity and security? And so these are the questions that we need to start thinking through and as we move forward. Well, and, and, and part, it needs to become part of the debate. I mean, I guess that's the problem is we, we're not even really having a debate or a, even it doesn't seem like a real deep conversation about this, we we just hear the Chelsea Manning story, and then you know the talking heads all fight about it. But Sanjay, we're not asking these questions you're asking, right? And and I think we need to start thinking about it. But see, because the problem is not solved, most people think that we have not solved the security problem, right? Right. That is not true at all. We have made huge advances in security, but the technology changes so fast that the advances we make are quickly overshadowed by new vulnerabilities we create, new right. vectors of attack we create. Now, now just lo- look about 10 years down the road. We will have connected vehicles. We will have the smart grid. We will have Internet of Things. We will have pacemakers controlled from outside. And look at the implications of security then. Hmm. I mean, uh, somebody could break into somebody's pacemaker, give them a jolt, and kill them right away. Somebody walking through the, through the airport terminals Somebody could be targeting assassin. The next assassin could be using an, an electronic device to kill somebody with their own pacemaker. Right. Yeah. So, or bring down a plane through yeah, technology, well, right? Not even sitting on the plane. Right. So things are moving fast. And, uh, you know, thinking about inside of that, just, that's just one of them. But we need to start thinking through wh- what are our real values? Where do we need to provide privacy? Where do we need to provide security? in order to be able to tackle the most serious challenges that will come in the near future. Mm. Does, um, I, I guess at the university level, you're talking about this, and I'm sure you go to a lot of conferences. Do, where, what do you suggest we do to get some of these conversations out there, to start having more of these, these balanced conversations, and, and really to understand what our goals are? Right. I mean, these are, these are supposed to happen at multiple levels, right? You know, you need to have state-to-state diplomacy that, look, mutual deterrence, that, hey, look, or mutual compromises, confidence-building measures, that, look, we are not going to attack you, you don't attack us because we both die. If something like that happens, we're going to destroy people's lifestyle. We will basically start killing people once we have the Internet of Things. So we need to reach state-to-state compromises, right? What happened uh, in the nuclear world? Two nuclear bombs dropped in Japan raised everybody's conscience level to an extent that an agreement was reached. I don't want that a catastrophe to happen before we reach a compromise at the international level on cybersecurity and not attacking each other. That's one. The second thing is we really need a debate among the academic community. We have privacy advocates at the same time, and at the same time we have researchers working on technologies, and then we have the government, which needs to provide security to people. 
we need to have a dialogue, as a, a national dialogue, an international dialogue. Hey, look, where do we stand on what? And plus, a lot of research needs to follow all of this. Can we create some kind of a privacy index where we can, a privacy and utility index, where we can lower the privacy standards based on the context? So, so a lot needs to be done, a discussion at various levels, but an honest discussion, right? Everybody takes their extreme positions, yeah. and, and they're ready to bark at each other, but that's, that's not the right way. We need to really nuance it, get a deeper understanding of what the issues are. Um, and I, I, I totally agree, and I feel like we, you know, it's got to begin somewhere. And I guess really that's why I wanted to have you on, is to help us really understand what's going on. There is a lot of advancement it's it's no longer even about a thumb drive anymore, but you can now know if a thumb drive is being inserted into a computer system. And overall, though, I guess Sanjay, I hear that there is there's there's hope. I mean, we're we we can do a lot, we can stop a lot, and we need to we really need to have more conversations to know how far to go. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is just the beginning, and this is not the stop. If we need more people working in this area, we need more people working in the privacy area, people working on the societal impact of privacy and security. So it, this is not a technical problem. This is a social problem. This is a problem of psychology, understanding people, understanding society. And uh, so that's what we need, even at a technical level, that we need multiple disciplines to come together to figure this thing out. Great. Sanjay Goyal, thank you so much for your time, your insight. Uh, truly, it's uh, important what you're doing. And and the more we hear about hacking and uh, intelligence leaks and surveillance, the more we, we need a better tracking system. So we appreciate you. Sanjay Goyal, again, remember, uh, associate professor at the School of Business at the University of Albany, SUNY, and um, author of the article is uh, part of Chelsea Manning's legacy, Increased Surveillance. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And maybe also increased conversation about surveillance, which may be just as important as Sanjay taught us. We'll take a break, folks. Coming back, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, as because we're here to help you. We wanted to give you a little update on some job opportunities if you're looking for a job. Terry has two employment updates. I found these online yesterday. Good. I thought maybe I would share them with the audience. You weren't looking for jobs. No, 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 no. You were just, sort of came up. This just came up. Yeah. Okay. Very happy with uh, where I'm at. And what's you love on. what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, a shortage of required citizens, to, uh, witnesses to watch eight lethal injections over the next 10-day period next month. So 10 days, over 10 days next month, they need witnesses to watch some lethal injections. Wow. Uh, prompted the state uh, prison director in Arkansas Tuesday to call on Rotary Club members to volunteer. Uh, who, who's in the Rotary Club? I guess anybody that wants to be. I guess it's just kind of open. <laughs> yeah. Citizen witnesses are there to verify that the individual executions are carried out according to law. A volunteer must be at least 21 years old, an Arkansas resident, and have no felony criminal history and have no con- connection to the inmate or victim. Okay, yeah. So you basically want a millennial, which I'm not, and uh, someone who <laughs> plays video games and is completely dull to anything violent. Or, yeah. or somebody that might like it. Ooh, that's kind of well, creepy. It's lethal yeah. injection. They should just go to sleep. 
Yeah, they right? should. So it, uh, it hasn't happened over the last few because, you know. That's why they're having a hard anymore. time getting them. It says, the last times these were set, we actually did not have enough people volunteer. Department of Corrections director said in uh, as they were talking to 99 Little Rock Rotary Club members. So they're hmm. trying to convince them. A little outreach there. You seem to be a group that does not have felony backgrounds and are over 21. So if you're interested in serving in that area, this is a serious role. Just call my office. That was his pitch. The uh, eight executions are scheduled two at a time beginning April 17th, ending April 27th. Uh, according to state law wow. in Arkansas, they require that the prison director uh, have no fewer than six and no more than 12 citizen witnesses at each execution. Wow. So they're, You know what I've found, though? Yeah. You can always call the, the PTA. <laughs> the PTA, PTA will help. They'll, they'll, they're and, always there to help. And that rush to get 10 in a week, yeah. 10 executions in a week, is because the drugs, uh, the expiration dates are coming up on the drugs. They're trying to get this taken care of before oh, okay. they have to buy new drugs. I thought they were going for a record. No. <laughs> Wait, didn't we talk about this before? Yeah. Like, what's the what's the point? What's well, who the cares if, yeah. if they're expired? Well, yeah. Well, I guess the effectiveness of the drugs. Yeah, well, you got to do it humane. It'll right? still kill you, right? Yeah, but you don't want the person to suffer because then it looks bad. Because usually there's, like, TV people watching, too. And then they'll report. Well, and now there's witnesses. Speaking of suffering, all those uh, prescription drug commercials that you see, like, don't take this drug unless you want to die, basically. (laughs) That's a lot. They they list all the side effects. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You've had some of those side effects without even taking the drug. I should have died like five times already. And the other job I found, if you've always liked the idea of working for the Queen of England. No, hold on. Yeah. Who... Have Oop. you have you wanted to work for the Queen of no. England? Well, I mean, just maybe people if, have. Maybe I don't know. It's a, it's a is that a, a thing? Wide, is that a thing? Could be people okay. like you know, the Queen and happen to be a skill skilled in soft furnishings. This could be the ideal job for you. Okay. The, the royal household is hiring someone to make cushions and curtains in Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, and St James Palace, and is likely the successful candidate will be kept busy because. They need to remodel and refurnish and reupholster a lot of items, apparently. Oh, interesting. The full-time position pays $27,000 a year, involves looking after 1,000 rooms in the, in the three palaces, and is to be expected when you're working for royalty, you must have extensive experience and outstanding practical skills. Both are said to be essential for the job. Boy, Sounds like a pretty cushy job. It says the furnishing, the soft furnishings upholsterer will maintain the presentation and functionality of these unique environments and will consistently aim for the highest standards. It's great. I don't think any of us are qualified. As well as managing soft furnishing, pro- furnishing projects, designing new items, cutting fabrics, the person in this role will also be expected to care for numerous historic items and ensure the workrooms are kept in good condition, fully equipped, and stocked. Wow. For how much? Twenty seven thousand? Yeah. US dollars? Well, it's twenty two thousand pounds or twenty seven thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. That's not a lot of money. Seems like a lot they're asking for a lot to get so little. Right. But it is cushy, as you said. Wait, how much? How much do we get paid for the lethal injection witnessing? Oh, that's free. That's just your your citizen. That's like jury duty, but they don't pay you for it. You just go watch people die. By the way, later that day, you can also go watch car accidents off the freeway. So I can have psychological damage for the rest of my life for free. Uh-huh. So for the queen's job, it says applicants must also be organized with a structured approach to work. Oh, boy. See, we don't. Okay, we're out. <laughs> yeah. So Out. 
So there that's you go. not happening. Arkansas <laughs> needs people to witness lethal injections, and the queen needs someone to recover her couch. We'll keep bringing you job openings all around the country, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world and in the U.K. Bye-bye. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Dr. Matt here. Good news. Jeffrey Simpson's back with us. How are you, Jeff? You feeling better? I'm feeling better. I'm feeling uh, whole again. Good, good. Have you, um, I really want to take you to lunch today. Have you, have you tried that tossed salad from Chili's? Uh, I tried the shrimp, shrimp salad. Yeah. How'd it go? Well, let's just say not everything came out all right in the end. Okay. Good news. Uh, we'll, we'll, I just want, I'm just glad you're healthy. You're back. You're happy. Um, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, phantom cell phone ringing. Have you ever had that weird phantom ring? Like, yeah, like that one that just ignites. <laughs> that ignites into your back pocket. Not that type, but where you feel this vibration in your pocket all the time, and you then pull out your phone, and it's it wasn't your phone. It was a phantom vibration. I'm guessing there's some psychological thing going on there where I just feel lonely and really want somebody to give me a call. You know what? Psychologically, that's part of it. You are you might be addicted to your loneliness. You your case is a little bit different because um, a lot of people they say that have been electrocuted also have phantom pains. Really? And phantom ringing. So because you you've been electrocuted. Um, you may yours may just be more attributed to that than the fact that you have an addiction. So if I'm feeling kind of like a you know the brain freeze sensation you get. Yeah. I'm feeling that right now kind of in my uh left the left side of my shoulder. Does it um, does it radiate down your arm? Uh it's have, it's only about halfway down. Do you have chest pain? Just, you know, just the upper left, just right on the sh- in the shoulder area. Yeah, you might be having a heart attack. Well, but you're an EMT, right? Or you, you were yeah, an EMT? Yeah, used to be. Yeah, a few years ago. Okay, like twenty seven years ago. See, I can't afford, you know, the ambulance. But you well, know, as long as you're here, well, I should be okay. You. Terry will take you. Well, I'm not the. I'm not trained, though. You That's, are. You're fine. He doesn't want to get sued. Yeah, I don't want to get involved either. You'll be fine. Just put no. him in the back seat. Nah, it's fine. No, you, you're you're Just pull over, pick him up a toss salad from Lily's. This is going to be a lot funnier if I actually do have a heart attack. <laughs> wow. Do you remember how we made all those jokes about Jeff having a heart attack and then he had a heart attack? Right. That was funny. Awkward. That was. All right, now we'll we'll check you. I'll check you during the break. But if you do go down, I'll do CPR. I'll do the compressions. Terry does the respirations, and. 
We're, we're, you're set. Just remember, uh, if if you do have to do mouth to mouth, you're not supposed to plug my mouth and my nose. That kind of ruins it. Really? Don't plug my nose and my mouth at the same time. Okay, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Just a little help, folks. That's what we like to do on the show. Make sure you're updated on the latest uh, CPR techniques. Do not plug both the hand. Don't put your hand over the mouth and the nose. That, you're not. You're not in my will. No. So no. You don't, it's all good. you don't need to progress things further along. It's all good. It's all good. We'll be talking phantom cell phone buzzes. When you get that phantom ring that doesn't – it's not real, but you're sure it is. It kind of – we're going to get into really the addiction of your cell phone and the impact it's having. All that ahead, plus uh, Caitlin Thomas will join us talking a little sports memorabilia apparently. Yeah. You never know, right? I mean it, there's there's so many things like jerseys. You could take Tom Brady's jersey, for example, make a lot of money on that thing. Or two of them. Two of them. Plus uh, one of the Denver Broncos helmets, because apparently that same guy that stole Tom Brady's jersey had a Denver Broncos helmet. Did he really? That's what I read. What a little klepto. He had the illegal sports memorabilia market. Yeah, that's a big market, too. Did anybody check with OJ to see if he stole any of that stuff? Well, with OJ, he was in prison, though, right? Yeah. But with him getting out soon, there's going to be a lot of stuff on the market. Gonna need some money. There's yeah. also talk of a reality show with him, by the way. Also, so that's coming up. Oh boy! Yeah, must see TV. <laughs> That'll be great. Uh, okay, let's get to the headlines now with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Before we start, little little change here. Um, so the Freedom Caucus they kind of stood in the way of President Trump on the yeah. health care bill. There's some thought maybe they're going to stand in the way of the, any sort of tax plan, mm-hmm. maybe the funding of the government coming up. Yeah. And uh, one of the members over the weekend stepped down. His name is uh, Representative Ted Poe from Texas. He had this to say on CNN yesterday, clip three. You know, I, got, I got the opinion that there's some members of the Freedom Caucus, they'd vote no against the Ten Commandments if oh. they came up for a vote. <laughs> That, that is fine words. That made me laugh. So this is the Freedom Caucus, the Freedom which caucus. is not any relation to Streptococcus. No. No, okay. that's different. That's different. different but just the vote against the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's just kind of funny. Yeah. Now now on to the, uh, the news. Lindsey Graham, our uh, delicate uh, Southern belle of yeah. a senator, uh, Tuesday said that uh, Objectivity in the House Intelligence Committee Chairman David Nunez is in question over his handling of classified information involving Trump. Well, I think you put his uh, his uh, objectivity in question at the very least. Here's what I would suggest, that David go to his Democratic colleagues and share the information that he was given by this unknown person so they would all know exactly what he's talking about. And if he's not willing to tell the Democrats and Republicans on the committee who he met with and what he was told, then I think he's lost his ability to lead. So Nunez went to the White House, saw some documents, unnamed person, little cloak and daggerish sort of feel yeah, to it. He yeah. says it's no big deal. I did it during the middle of the day. Other people saw me there. I shook hands, talked to people, kissed the babies. There was no babies, but it was that kind of thing. And then now people are like, but you didn't tell your staff. You didn't tell the whole intelligence committee, the whole point of the committee. You're just supposed to work with the Democrats. Right, right. supposed to be competitive. Are we supposed to tell our mom everywhere, we're, everywhere we go? Well, not anymore, Jeffrey, now that you're married. You're probably good to go. You're free of your mom. Okay. Now this all has to do with the Trump team and what what connection, what any contact they had with 
Russian intelligence or whatever, all this stuff that's been going on. And then he goes and meets with the president and informs him on everything before he tells anybody on the intelligence committee, which caused some issues, and uh, breaches a protocol left and right. And so it's this concern about can he actually conduct a legitimate investigation or yeah. is he compromised? That's really the question. Right. This morning it was announced that House Intelligence Committee Chairman David Nunez has reportedly scrapped all upcoming full committee meetings. Oh, really? Yeah, so those are out the door now. And he's going to meet privately with the FBI and the NSA. And I guess what is might, going I, on? I'm not sure. Every couple minutes something comes up here. Former Vice President Dick Cheney declared on Monday that there is no question that Russia meddled in the 2016 U.S. election, adding that it might be an act of war. Cheney was blamed in part for taking the U.S. to war in Iraq, was uh, speaking at the Economic Times Global Summit. It was, I think, Russian President Vladimir Putin has designs on the Baltics. We know he wants Crimea. He took it. Cheney said there's no question that there was very serious effort made by Mr. Putin and his government, his organizations, to interfere in major ways with the basic fundamental democratic process in some quarters that could be considered an act of war. Wow. Granted, he did shoot his friend. Yeah. While shoot him! So, different, different, different. <laughs> shoot them, Russians. The Department of Justice will block approximately $4.1 billion in funding for so, so-called sanctuary cities, according to uh, Gen- uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced Monday. Local jurisdictions that do not comply with federal law will be barred from receiving federal grants, Sessions said in a statement. He pointed specifically to 8 U.S. Code Section 1373. He said that like four times. It was, he had to actually look it up to see what it was. Wow. Which prohibits local authorities from blocking communications from federal agencies like the Immigration and Naturalization Service. In some sanctuary cities, local law enforcement chooses not to comply with federal detainers requesting information on custody of undocumented immigrants. While municipalities are not legally obligated to comply with the detainers, like ICE and other immigration enforcement groups, federal code makes it illegal to block the communications. Should local authorities interfere with the detainer, their city should uh, lose federal funding. This could mean, like, for instance, San Francisco, San Francisco, and New York could lose a combined twenty-five billion really? in federal funds, which goes to anti-terrorism yeah. activities and things of that nature. So it could become a, a profound issue for these cities. Oh yeah, uh, thieves have stolen a one or two hundred twenty-one pound gold coin from a museum in Berlin. What? The heist took place overnight. And police unsurprisingly suspect it was the work of multiple burglars because it weighs 221 pounds. The big maple leaf, as the coin is known, is worth more than $4 million due to the amount of gold in it. The coin was issued by the Royal Canadian Mint, because why not, and features an image of Queen Elizabeth II. On wow. one side and a maple leaf on the reverse, it's more than 20 inches wide. If you have any information, call a museum in Germany, apparently. Apparently they're hiring. In the, the Queen's hiring somebody. Yeah. To upholster her, like, uh, I don't know, couches and multiple residences. Yeah. Her cushions. Yeah. But you're only getting $27,000. But you get, you know, you get to hang out at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, you get to bow to the queen. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know what more you so want. What? how much money would make that a ideal job? 150 k To upholster, like, couches and chairs and stuff. Yeah, just walk around and test all the furniture. All right, well. I mean, I think it'd be fun for a week or two. A week or two? Then I think you get a little bored. What, what if you just live for recovering furniture? 
Okay, then you do it for twenty seven grand. Okay. Well, or if you love the queen. Yeah. And you I, want I, her to I, be comfy. I think they're adding the benefit of the queen as the reason why you would do oh, it yeah. for such a cheap price. Oh, but sure. You can just watch her Netflix show if you want to feel close to her. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I do it. And it's cheaper. Uh, today also, by the way, something on a stick day. Hmm. Who doesn't love relaxed finger foods that you can pick up by the stick and eat it? Mm. So whether it's a toffee apple, uh, campfire sausage, cheese cubes mm. on a toothpick, ice cream bar, lollipop, mm. today's the day. Something on a stick day. Court dog. Have you ever had a tossed salad on a stick? I have not. How about a tossed shrimp salad? Nope. Have you ever tossed a salad? Uh, Probably. One thing about tossed salads, it doesn't stick to your insides. That's for sure. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, let's just say uh, it likes to move. Okay. Wow. We got a lot to talk about today. And yet, for some reason, you keep talking about that. (laughs) A 70-year-old woman ran a marathon on every continent in one week. Show off. Show off. Yep, that's what that is. These seniors. Yeah. Look what I can do. Making me look bad. Chow Smith is a 70-year-old Missouri runner who's competed in approximately 70 races. Last year, she decided she wanted to set the bar even higher for herself with a new goal, run seven marathons on seven continents in the span of one week. And she did it, by golly. Smith ran in Australia, Cairo, Amsterdam, Singapore, New York, Chile and King George Island, Antarctica. Don't say Chile. See, Why? Yeah, right. They toss in Antarctica just to show off, right? Because what are you running? Yeah, and you're running around. In a, if it's an island, or is it a circle type? I mean, you're just running around. I mean, it's not 26 miles. Yeah, I don't know what right? you do. And there. at that point, you're just running to stay alive because it's so cold. Right. Yeah. Just showing off. Totally showing off. You were just laughing at the word running. Yeah. You just, someday you just got to run. Yeah. By the way, I think the hardest one would be Chile. Wouldn't it be Cairo? Yeah, Cairo would be hard. It's hot. It's hot. Oh, dirt. Amsterdam, beautiful time to run. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> beautiful time to run. Um, she decided to take on the challenge, which she called, which was called the Triple Seven Quest, as a way to celebrate her birthday. She trained for eight months to get ready for the challenge. Her preparation also included working with a running coach, physical therapist, and a nutritionist, as well as practicing her pacing. Normally, she can run the twenty-six point two miles in about five hours, but she wanted to make sure she could keep her stamina up for all the races. The runner credits physical activity and keeping her health, uh, uh, keeping her healthy and happy. And research supports her theory. Studies show regular exercise can keep the brain sharp, increase longevity, and decrease anxiety. Hmm. Good job, Chow Smith, seventy years old. You, she did it. She succeeded. She did what very few people do, and would want to do: the triple seven quest. Yeah, I think anything over three miles is a deal breaker. I mean, you got to run 26.2 miles every day. Yeah. Plus fly. So you just, you then have to, would you not have jet lag? And just think of just the horrible food on these airplanes. Right. And the middle seat, you know. Maybe a shrimp salad. 
It's horrible. Oh, have you ever tried a shrimp salad? I have not. Sheesh. It's tough. <laughs> Jeff, good to have you back. This show so far has been a, a tribute to Jeff and his health. Or lack of, whichever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good to have you back. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be talking about phantom cell phone ringing. Have you had the phantom ring? If so, stick with us. You may have a bigger problem than you know of. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Have you ever experienced a phantom phone call or text? You're convinced that you felt your phone vibrate in your pocket or that you heard your ringtone, but then when you check your phone, no one actually tried to get in touch with you. You then plausibly wonder, is my phone acting up or is it me? Well, it's probably you, my friends, and it could be a sign that you just uh, have become too attached to your phone But uh, the good news is this. You're not alone. Joining us is Daniel Kruger, research assistant professor at the University of Michigan. He's here with us this morning to help us learn more about phantom buzzing, what it means, and what we need to do about it. Uh, Professor Kruger, thank you for your time. Certainly, Matt. Good morning. This is uh, an interesting topic. So the buzzing phantom phone ring, is it a sign of bigger problems? Well, people who experience it very frequently, more than, more than a few times a day, might be psychologically dependent on their phone. So most people experience it some of the times, but the more people experience it, the more it seems to indicate that they are craving the rewards from all these messages that they receive on their phone. You know, it's their connection to their social world and to, uh, you know, information. And because they're anticipating these messages so much, they get hypersensitized, you know, to sounds or they have the phone in their pocket and sort of like rubbing in their, in their pant leg, you know, they interpret that as, as a vibration more likely. So people who are experiencing it very, very often, you know, that might indicate problematic usage, but it seems like most people experience it at least some of the time. Mm. Is it, is it, can we call uh, phone, excessive phone use an addiction yet? Are we, are we to the level of calling it an addiction? Well, there's a big debate about that, and actually the people who create the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual didn't accept it into the latest uh, round of updates and revision. So there's a big debate. I think there's a lot of researchers who say that, yes, this is an addiction, just like you could be addicted to a substance. You know, you could be addicted to mobile phones or technology, but I think there there was a lot of pushback from folks who thought, oh, well, that's silly. You know, this isn't you know, this isn't like cocaine or something. So right now it, it's still a battle. So it's not, it's not officially a psychiatric diagnosis, but in the literature, you know, you will see researchers talking about phone addiction and trying to measure it. Because, I mean, many people would wonder, wouldn't the addiction need a chemistry? But there is a chemistry attached, right? It's a brain chemical that's being ignited by such a, such a need. Right, right. You know, our, our, our mind is the product of our brain, and we have neurotransmitters and, uh, you know, neurotransmitters like dopamine that uh, give us rewards. And there's other people who have looked at how 
uh, you know, phone use relates to, you know, this dopamine reward system. So, so there is a physiological basis, you know, so the stimuli that we're getting is, you know, is more social or more informational. We're not directly manipulating the chemicals in our brain, but the chemicals in our brain are responding to these stimuli just as well. Yeah. I, I can see some people not relating to this phantom buzz idea because maybe, you know, they don't, they're, they're not that into their phone. But in your, in your article, in your information, you talked about 80% of college students have experienced this phantom buzz. Right, right. So it's, it's pretty high. And I guess that's not surprising considering that today's college students report using their cell phones up to about five hours a day, mm. which is uh, incredibly remarkable to me. But, uh, you know, I think this is something that just really pervades our culture, especially for those who have grown up when, when cell phones have always been around. Yeah. You know, so if, uh, so if Marty McFly, you know, was actually able to travel in time from 1985 to the real 2015, he wouldn't see flying cars. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> they're, they're still working on that and per- trying to perfect it. What he would notice is the screens. Everybody would be on their screens. You know, he'd be walking around the downtown public square there and trying to trying to talk to someone, mm. and they'd be ignoring him because they'd be, you know, looking on their phones. They'd have headphones in, and then when he finally got to someone, they would say, you know, he would say, "Oh, you know, can you help me find Doc Brown?" So they'd Google him and say, "Oh yeah, here's a bunch of pictures of him. Here's where he lives. Here's his phone number. Do you want me to call him?" <laughs> and they'd call him, and Marty would be astonished. Yeah. So it's an incredibly powerful technology, and there's so many things you can do with it, and maybe that's one of the reasons why. You know, it is so widely utilized, but this is something that really has changed our, our social landscape. And once you start noticing it, you'll notice it everywhere. You know, if you go out to a coffee house, you know, or just out in public anywhere, you know, just, just pay attention to how many people are on their phones and question, you know, is this, is this influencing our real world social dynamics? Oh, it really, I mean, as you research it, it is. What do you see? How do you see it impacting us socially? Well, one one thing that we're noticing, we're actually working in research now where we're taking people's phones away, right? And we're finding that compared to those that don't have their phones taken away, when people have their phones taken away, they actually socialize more with the other people around them. Really? You know, so that's a that's a controlled experiment you know, where we're demonstrating this pattern that we see happening in the real world, and now we can we can empirically verify it in the controlled lab setting. And what happened to those, I'm, my kids would, would like to know, what happens to those people when their phones are taken away? Do they die? Because they're convinced they're going to die. <laughs> right. Well, the, the funny thing is, is, uh, you know, we actually, you know, we, we put the phones in a box, and we actually see some people like looking at the box, you know, so they know their phone is in there and they're sitting in their seat. They're being good, but they know their phone is in there. So, uh, you know, it just shows you how how much people might, uh, you know, crave the stimuli. You know, we did another study where we just went out and we watched people as they waited in line for coffee or, you know, for the bus stop or whatnot. And we just looked to see how many people use their phones and, in the majority, like two thirds of people were using their phones. And when people, you know, were not using their phone, but then they arrived in line, most of them used their phone within the first 10 seconds. So the uh, minute so, they get that break, their brain immediately thinks, get the phone out. We got to get the phone out. 
Right, right. Not even, not even the minute. Fifty-five percent did it in the first ten seconds, and eighty percent did it in the first twenty seconds. Oh my heavens! And that's even that's even quicker than I expected. I I thought you're right. You know, in the first minute, most people will be taking out their phones, but you know that's why it seems like it's the end of downtime. You know, like any downtime or any time where you're you know you're just sitting around. It's like, hey, well, I might as well be on my phone because I could be checking Facebook or Twitter you know, or going online and, you know, seeing what's up in the news, you know, so it it really is this, you know, wonderful resource that we have, but at the same time, you know, we're still, we're still in the learning phases of, you know, how can we effectively utilize this so we maximize the benefits, but we don't impair our own social functionality. You know, if we, if we get so used to just communicating with people online, you know, through text, are people going to be able to interact appropriately, you know, in real life situations? Man, this is it's true, and um, and two, it, it, what's there's a little it's a little pernicious if you start to think that there's a chemical involved as well. I mean, that you might even you're actually feeding this need uh, chemically. I mean, we always think of it kind of intellectually. Well, I'm just checking my email. Hello, I have a few seconds, but it used to be we would we wouldn't worry about that. Now we're worrying about things that we don't even necessarily care about or need. Right, right. You know, it's like, oh, you know, did I get an email? Did I get a message? Um, You know, sometimes and sometimes people are expecting a message and that actually makes these uh, phantom experiences more likely when they're they're anticipating, oh, you know, somebody's going to send me something that makes it more likely. But even just in in ordinary time, you know, folks are, are more sensitive. And, you know, there is a, a neurological basis, you know, like you, you said, uh, you know, chemicals of addiction, you know, things like cocaine and heroin, you know, those kind of hotwire our brains. You know, yeah. you're basically taking these extremely refined chemicals, so they're extremely powerful, and it really, you know, it's like putting jumper cables, you know, into your brain. But even social stimuli, you know, like talking with someone, like even getting a hug from someone, you know, that also causes right. changes in your brain. You know, not as intensely, but, you know, it's the same with these, uh, you know, with these rewards from, you know, from your phone. You know, your phone, it's not just a, you know, it's not just this brick, you know, this electronic brick. This is your social world right in your palm in your hand. So, you know, you're getting some, some social connections and social rewards just as if you were, you know, talking on the phone or, you know, talking, uh, talking in person to people. But, you know, what we're, what we're looking at in this study, you know, is this, you know, do these phantom experiences give some supportive evidence to the notion that these, uh, you know, these cell phones and such can have addictive properties? You know, how can we, you know, how, how can we think of this uh, in terms of, uh, the the things that happen when someone is addicted to a substance, you know, does it fit the pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, and and this is our argument: when someone is addicted to something, you know, whatever it is, they get hypersensitized to the reward and things that are like the reward, you know. So if if somebody's addicted to you know tobacco and smoking cigarettes, you know, and they haven't had a cigarette in a while. You know, they'll look around and everything, you know, everything they see that connects to cigarettes, that will trigger them, right? Mm. Uh, and people get hypersensitive to things that are even in the same stimulus class, meaning that, you know, if there's like a sound or a smell or something that's associated with the reward, you know, usually, then you're going to be hypersensitive 
you know, to that sound or that smell or, you know, what something looks like because you'll be, you know, you're craving your reward and you're looking for it. So anything that's like evidence that this, this reward is coming is, is going to be triggering. So that's what we're, we're speculating here is that, you know, people have all kinds of sensory input, you know, so, uh, you know, our brain is a reducing valve, you know, Huxley kind of compared it to this, uh, you know, we have so much information that's coming in that we can't possibly comprehend everything simultaneously. So our brain processes it for us and interprets it. So we have to interpret, you know, is this a call? You know, we hear noises, you know, what is this? Is this, is, is this a call? Yeah. Is this a vibration? And, and basically when we, when we hear something that kind of sounds like our phone or if our phone is in our pocket and it's like rubbing in our, in our pocket, we might feel some sensation and we're more likely to interpret those sensations as an actual call or actual buzz. And it just might be the way that our brains work is that when we interpret things that way, you know, we might just feel it even more specifically than just there's something rubbing in my leg. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever seen something from far away and you can't yeah. really make it out, you know, you kind of see something there, right? Oh, that kind of looks like a person or, you know, that kind of looks like this. And then when you get closer, you say, oh, it's not. But, <laughs> you know, when you were far away, you really see that. Yeah. You know? and so, like, your, your brain is filling in that information. You know, it's basically imputing that information to reach a conclusion that's going to be useful to you, right? Yep. So when you get these, you know, when you, when you hear something or when you have a feeling, uh, you know, you, you interpret these as the phone messages because you're craving it and you're hypersensitive to the you know indications that you're you're getting these communications yeah oh man it's a tangled web um when we because we can we can make it seem like it's whatever our brain needs it to be we're going to take a break we're speaking with dr daniel kruger he's an assistant professor at the university of michigan he's been doing some research on phantom phone pains and really the impact both socially and emotionally of uh you know what might be the beginning of the concept or the validation of possible addiction to to the phone. At least it's your brain, you know, doing everything it can to get you back on that phone. It needs you back on that phone. We'll take a break. Continue this discussion of uh, possibly the new virtual drug, your cell phone. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Dr. Daniel Kruger from University of Michigan, who's been doing some research on the, the what's behind phantom cell phone buzzes. You ever had that feeling that your phone is, you know, vibrating, buzzing in your back pocket, and then you check it, and nope, nope, no one called. Those cell phone uh, buzzes may be telling you you got a bigger problem. And uh, Dr. Kruger, thank you again for being with us. Yes. Good morning. In your research uh, about, you know, how often were these phantom buzzes occurring? How many times a day? Was it a multiple time a day thing? What did you notice in the research? Yeah, it depends on, depends on the individual. So, you know, most people did feel them at least once in a while. Uh, you know, the most common 
was uh, phantom vibration. So almost 80% of people, you know, felt these phantom vibrations. And then uh, about 40, 47% phantom notifications and 37% phantom ringing. But most people feel them, you know, once in a while. Uh, you know, just a, much, a smaller portion feels them uh, once a day or more. Hmm. Did you, um, I mean, I guess as, as you've been doing the research, what are what are some other things that are standing out as ahas for you, as as some pretty important learnings that we all ought to hear about? Well, it's just amazing how much cell phones are integrated into our lives and how dependent we're getting on this technology for many things that we do. You know, I thought uh, the ads that uh, played in the in the break were were really perfect for this because you know they're talking about you know what the future is going to be like and integrating technology into the classroom, and that certainly has lots and lots of potential, but it also <laughs> raises the issue of, you know, are we going to become dependent on this technology, right. you know, both psychologically and technically dependent? So imagine, you know, if you have a classroom that's set up, you know, with PowerPoint and multimedia, and you have all these demonstrations set up, and then the power goes out, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, are you going to pick up a piece of chalk? Uh, it's uh, so it's a it's a it's a, a big question to raise, and you know maybe at the same time that we make use of, of this technology, we should also keep in good practice. You know, being able to to work without it. So, one thing people can do, especially if they're if they're feeling that they're getting more and more you know dependent on this technology, and they're feeling these phantom experiences quite often is, you know, take some time out, you know, so have, have scheduled times where, you know, you don't use your phone or take a break, you know, go away for the weekend, uh, you know, go camping or go somewhere and, you know, just leave your phone off and just take a break from it so that you can, you know, interact and get used to the, the experiences of not always having your phone on. Yeah. I mean, again, that's, <laughs> that seems like such an extreme thing, but it, it really, it's healthy. Like there's, there, it's so nice sometimes to have to put your phone, you know, lock it away in your car and go take that hike and know that you don't have service anyway. It doesn't help you anyway. Um, I, I, but then again, I guess if you've, if you've gotten it to a point where there's maybe a, a level of addiction or need, whatever we're going to call it, Boy, that's that's even hard to do. Have we? Do we have data? I mean, I guess we've only been really gathering data on cell phone use for you know twenty, thirty years. I'm assuming. Yeah, you know, cell phones. Uh, thirty years ago, uh, you know, people had car phones. Yeah, they were right? too it big to carry. Heavy. <laughs> right. You know, it was a, it was the size of a shoebox and it weighed like fifty pounds. So, uh, you know, mo- so those were mostly in people's cars and such, but. Uh, you know, really kind of like in the 1990s, uh, that's when they started getting small enough for people to actually carry them around. And do you remember when the first smartphones came out? You know, the first smartphones was like the BlackBerry. Yeah. And do you remember the nickname for the BlackBerry was the CrackBerry? That's right. You know, because people would see, oh, wow, look, there's somebody on their BlackBerry. And this was back when this was a new thing, so everyone was noticing you know, wow, here, look at these people with their phones. So in a similar way, uh, you know, if there was someone from, you know, like I said, another time or another culture or something who came into our society, you know, they would come here and they'd see us and they'd say, oh, wow, 
you know, look at this. These people are addicted to their phones mm. because they're using them all the time. Would would it be better? I mean, I guess is it less addictive if you weren't using it for – if you were only using your phone to, you know, to do your business, to do work, your emails, your calendar – does it become less addictive? Like I noticed the minute I started watching Netflix on mine, I all of a sudden needed a bigger screen. My phone now weighs more. Like I probably had to get suspenders and a belt to keep it up. And um, or is, so is it the fact that we're using it for so many other things, games and social media, that it's becoming so addictive? Or would it be as addictive with just, you know, work apps? Well, it seems it seems like the work apps can be touchy if people are highly motivated to do their work and they're doing it on the road, you know, and they want to keep up and they want to yeah. make sure that everything is done. But at the same time, I think that people get a lot more satisfaction and enjoyment of, you know, going on Netflix or going on Facebook, you know, compared to working in a spreadsheet. Right. You know, so we're, right. we're, we're getting the social rewards, you know, through our, our social media that I think go above and beyond, you know, just pure informational rewards. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people were addicted to electronic calculators, but given <laughs> I don't think there were any studies on it, it doesn't seem like it was a pervasive issue. Right. You know, so if you just had a, a practical utilitarian device that, you know, just did stuff that was useful, right, I don't think that people would be pulling that out every time they stopped at the red light. Right. And it's, I mean, now everything, it really is, it's your music, it's your entertainment, it's your, it's everything you've got. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, I'm just thinking of how I would use it with my family. What what suggestions do you have? I guess one is taking a break um, with your technology. Any other suggestions you've seen for people with families, kids, any, any recommendations? Yeah, well, you know, when everyone gets down, uh, you know, sits down at dinner, put the phones away. You know, so talk to each other. Oh, boy. You know, that's, yeah. That's prime, prime time for social interaction. And a lot of people have, uh, you know, basically rules and schedules. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough. You know, it's, it's sort of like you don't want to eliminate the phone because then, of course, the kids are just going to try to sneak off and use it. Uh, but if you limit it, you know, say, okay, well, you, you, you get an hour of screen time in the evening, but you have to do your homework first. You know, that gives them an incentive to do their work, and then they get the rewards, but, you know, it's regulated, and it's not taking over their entire evening. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? And it's, um, I guess, too, like we use ours because there's there's a lot of great stuff that the kids can use just with their own – with with YouTube and research and I mean Wikipedia, the stuff these kids know, and accessing data and the research they're doing. So I mean, the, I guess the benefits are there. What um, what advice too, or what other recommendations and uh, what other directions are you going to now take the research, just based on this last study you've done? Well, we're we're going to combine different types of research to see what people think about their phones and their experiences. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be combining our methodology. So combining observations with giving them surveys and then focus group discussions to see, you know, just how they feel about their phones and then see if we can connect these areas. So for example, we found that, you know, people, uh, you know, who are 
you know, who have higher cell phone dependency, you know, are they going to be using their phones uh, quicker? You know, that's a that's a research question that we'll we'll be looking at in the future. And you know, we know for sure already that you know when you take the phones away, people are more likely to talk to other people. You know, they they initiate conversation sooner and they spend more time in conversation than when they have their phones there. Isn't that true? Um, do you think that, you know, uh, this is causing, is there, and have you been able to validate any causal relationship between cell phone use, technology use, and anxiety, any increased anxiety? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, so anxiety is, is related to these phantom experiences, um, you know, but that's, that's sort of a broader question. And I'm sure that we, we see a lot of anxiety from just our high pressure world. Yeah. And maybe the, the notion of being on call, you know, it's like you can always be working, you know, that could be, that could be producing anxiety, you know, and what you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, what, what happens when you take the phones away? You know, some people do seem to be anxious, like they, they can't imagine, what would I do? What would I do without my phone for three days? But uh, there have been times when, uh, you know, like the power goes out and it's out for three days. And then after the initial shock, people realize that, oh, wow, well, isn't this great? You know, no one could have got a hold of me and it's just fine. You know, and I can relax now because I'm not I'm not on call anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Now you can take a take a breath. Take a breath right. and relax. Well, Daniel, we appreciate you and your great work. Keep it up. Uh, dying to hear more about what you're finding out about our cell phones and, you know, if we can ever call this thing an addiction. Seems to act like one. Seems to be one. Again, his name is Daniel Kruger, uh, assistant professor at the University of Michigan and is uh, doing everything he can to help us understand the phantom cell phone buzzes. We will take a break. When we come back, continue uh, the fun and the discussion. Plus, Caitlin Thomas will be joining us talking about sports memorabilia. We'll be back. Have you ever noticed just how much money it costs to take a family to an NBA game? Have you ever stopped to wonder why we don't really bat an eyelash at the price of our favorite college football team season season tickets? It's just, we don't even look at it. It's not even a big deal. But to Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to talk about why we spend endless amounts of money on sports and memorabilia and what it means about our culture. Caitlin Thomas, welcome. Good morning. I like your stocking cap. Thank you. Look like a robber. Well, I think I must look like a man because this is a side note. But the guy at the drive-thru I went to this morning said, "Here you go, sir," and then have a good day, sir, to me. So. Really? Little did he know he was saying that to Miss Lehigh. Apparently, I should brush my hair. Maybe he a- thought you were a royal. It's been a long a year noble. since Miss Lehigh. Apparently. Yeah. Anyways, the queen has fallen. The queen has fallen. Oh boy. Go ahead, sir. It. <laughs> 
Happy March Madness. Matt, how's yeah. your bracket doing? Uh, my bracket, I didn't actually finish it. I started a bracket, mm. and then I started realizing I don't care about You don't about care this. too much about this. That's good because a lot of people would disagree with you. They care yeah, a lot about this. They cared this. a lot. By the way, how are their brackets? I, I don't Blown know. I didn't, I didn't make one this year. But I'm just fascinated, constantly fascinated at the amount of time, energy, and money we put into the sports Community, oh yeah! Oh, it's you crazy. Call it. Yeah. Like, for example, earlier in February, so earlier last month, a bunch of Kobe Bryant merchandise was stolen from like a big display case. Yeah. And a bunch of his memorabilia, and the people were caught. But it just got me thinking: like, they did that. Why would they risk so much for something like a, for a jersey? Because that yeah. jersey could probably go for more than stealing a necklace from a jewelry shop. Really? It's it it's worth that his jersey that he had in there was worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. What do you think a Carl's a Carlos Boozer, Boozer. splint for his finger is worth? Well, if you go on eBay or like Amazon they they sell weird I know. stuff like that. People buy he it, man. He threw his splint and my son caught it. Ew. And I'm like that's so gross. Oh, you need to take that splint back. Yeah, that's okay. gross. But um you know, I mean, like, the basketball jersey material and, like, everything it's made out of, you can buy, like, a plain one with nothing on it for, like, $5, right? Yeah, right. Well, and then all of a sudden— Hold on, hold on. What jersey? Just, like, a basketball? No, they're, like, $50. No, no, but I'm talking, like, for my little brother, if he wants to, like, play in, like, a rec league. Like, oh. you can go on Amazon and buy, like, reversible— Oh, you can buy, yeah, like, a, yeah, yeah, a like, cheap, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, but, like, if you want to stamp, like, a prof- like an NBA yeah, player's you wanna, name on right. it with, the, with his team, uh-huh. it goes up to over hundreds of dollars. Totally like it's crazy. Just, like it's it's not like it costs that much money. And to it's not stamp. like that, that. It's not really LeBron's jersey. No, it's no. Just there's got hun- his they make hundreds it. of these, right. and everybody's wearing them. So it's just it just it just kills. So I looked up an article. Okay. There is a psychology behind this. What's, why what's we collect? Why and Talk. buy this? Yeah. So go ahead, sir. I mean, the <laughs> origins. Hey, of collecting go way back. Humans have a deeply ingrained need to hoard things that help us survive the ah. next winter or natural disaster. So that's where. You know, collecting kind of got started. Um, but some players, some player collectors are like the biblical Noah. That's what this article said. Collecting one of each type or species of oh, card. Wow. Yeah. You know what, though? I, I agree with the survival aspect of it because if I'm bleeding out, one of those baseball cards, it's going to absorb really well. That's what I was yeah. thinking. It <laughs> just a jersey. Really, just grab it. I if mean, you're bleeding out, I'll grab a jersey. You can really use that to survive. Yeah. Um, it says collecting sports memorabilia helps us find a tangible connection to the games we love. Yeah. You know? Most collectors today started out as kids collecting baseball cards. Did you do that as a kid? I did. That was mostly for the gum, though. Yeah. Right. I was really more for the gum. but For the gum. But yeah. so th- those adults that have held on to that, that are still paying hundreds of dollars to buy Kobe Bryant's jersey. Yeah. Like, this is why. And then um, they, those who collect sp- sports memorabilia see our cardboard memories as having sentimental value. Yeah. They're emotionally attached to this stuff. They spur happy memories or an important it. moment of life shared with his favorite star or team. So it makes them feel this personal connection to the team, like they're actually a part of the team. Yeah, you feel like you belong. Right. We talked about this like, last year about football. It was they win versus I won. Uh-huh. So if they collect it and they're wearing the jersey, it's like, oh, I did it, even though they really did nothing but pay into the right. to the system. They're not even, yeah. <sighs> Some of us like to invest in things that we know. So while stocks and bonds may be complex to many, yeah. right? Investing in certain players or items is something we can do with confidence. We, do you feel it, confidence in that? Well, but I know people that do that. Right. And they, they keep it and then they – I know people that do that with Legos. 
No, it could really they make could a be fortune anything, on probably. Legos. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I just find this this fascinating. Um, in the past year, hobby newcomers have moved into the market buying rare sports memorabilia like the 1920 Babe Ruth jersey or some of the incredible find of century-old cards discovered in an Ohio house last summer. Oh, really? So people are coming in and now they're trying to – not only are we buying, you know, spending hundreds on – this current stuff. Now we're going back. They bought Babe Ruth's jersey, which is cool if you think about it. That would be a oh, cool yeah. thing to have. I'd take that. But like, but why? But why? Like it's it's a baseball jersey, but this explains why. We're attached to the sentimental value. It's um, – you're not just attached. You're – you care and it makes you feel like you belong to the gang. Yes, and we all want to feel like we belong. So whether these sports fans want to admit it or not – you too want to feel a sense of belonging. See, that's great. Thanks Good for giving us brackets. the insights. <laughs> Thank you, and that's why we love these pro sports, and we want to steal their I'm jerseys. I'm all about it. Just, just be careful when it comes to what you're careful. spending your money on. Right. It doesn't last forever. No, you're right. Thank you, Mom. Mm. Thank you, sir. Great show. Caitlin Thomas is her name. Also being called Sir. His today. name. Apparently. His name. We'll be back, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.